2: One issue that we have not talked a great deal about is uh, the presidential candidacy of the two women that are running for president in 2024. We've talked a little bit about Nikki Haley's candidacy with respect to my regular interviews with Brian Kilmeade. And uh, Brian will be here on Thursday, as he always is. And he's always a tremendous asset uh, to the show. But... I want to talk about one aspect of something that uh, Nikki Haley has proposed, which I think, quite frankly, is pretty much a gimmick to get attention. But I want to, just as we did with Marjorie Taylor Greene's idea for national secession, I want to put this idea out there that Nikki Haley has mentioned and see what you think of it. And if you have any merit, I'll I don't. And I'll tell you why in a moment, but let me tell you what it is. Nikki Haley has proposed a mental competency test for presidential candidates older than seventy-five. And older voters are have long been a key voting block for the Republicans, and a lot of them are balking at Nikki Haley's proposed mental. Competency test. Uh, According to Politico, interviews with more than a dozen attendees at Haley's first campaign events in recent days, all but three in their 60s, 70s and 80s revealed a GOP primary electorate open to a younger standard bearer but sharply divided over the insinuation that someone their age might be lacking in mental aptitude. Now, I understand why she's doing this. If she, This is about as subtle as a sledgehammer, which my wife refused to pick up from Home Depot, but that's a story for another day. Why she's doing this is to draw a contrast between the two leading candidates in the race, Joe Biden on the Democratic side and Donald Trump on the Republican side. See, with Trump... She has to walk a very fine line because she wants voters that like Trump and she wants to tout the fact that she was a key part of the Trump administration as an ambassador to the U.N., but she also wants to draw a distinction between she and Trump. And other than foreign policy and maybe trade, uh, she hasn't really drawn much of a policy distinction. So let me ask you this question that Nikki Haley's putting out there: Should presidential candidates older the over the age of seventy five have to take a mental competency test? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Irrespective and. You know, I want you to weigh in on the idea, whether you love Nikki Haley, whether you can't stand Nikki Haley, whether you don't care about Nikki Haley. Just talk about this idea that she's proposing. I don't see it really going anywhere, although you never know if we kept if we keep electing septogenarians and octogenarians, maybe it will go somewhere. I don't think this is a good idea. First of all, it's blatant age discrimination. The Constitution says in order to be eligible for the office of president, you've got to be over the age of 35. Anything beyond that should be up to us, the voters. If a candidate is not – if you have doubts about his competence or her competence, you shouldn't vote for that person. It shouldn't matter what a mental competency test says or – If someone over the age of 75 is getting a mental competency test, then everybody should get a mental competency test. I know people who are 75, 80, 85 years old who are sharper than I am. You know, William Shatner, 90, 92 years old, the guy is as sharp as a tack. Other people I know are 70 years old and they are. They are starting to lose it at 70. So you can't have these artificial barriers for people once they reach a certain age. At least I don't think you, you should. The ultimate judge of whether someone is competent or someone is qualified should be us, the voters. So my, I don't like this idea at all. I think it's blatant age discrimination, and I understand why some people may want a younger president or a younger presidential candidate. I get it. But to say that only this class of candidates has to get a mental competency test, I think that idea stinks. So whatever your opinion of Nikki Haley is, we'll do a, you know, she's going to be running for a while, so we'll have plenty of opportunities to discuss Nikki Haley. Whatever your idea of her I want to know your idea, your opinion of this idea. Should candidates over the age of 75 have to take a mental competency test? I say no, or make every person of every age, whether you're 38 or 88, take a mental competency test. I was talking with Ralph Nader yesterday, and he's going to be on the show tomorrow. I was talking to Ralph Nader yesterday. The guy is much quicker than I am. I'm I'm not I'm not saying that uh, to make a point that's the truth. The guy is very very sharp. The guy's memory is on point, the guy's ability to analyze complex problems is on point. The the man's ability to think is on point. Now whatever you think of Ralph Nader's politics that's a separate issue. But to me this looks like pandering. And um I had a friend he ran for state senate this is 20 years ago. It's hard to believe. But at the time, the man that he was running against in New York was the oldest state senator in New York. And he had been in uh, office for about 48 years, almost half a century. He was elected in the Eisenhower era. And everyone acknowledged after the campaign that even though my friend lost, that he handled himself in such a classy manner because he didn't go out of his way to call his opponent old which would be the only reason you wouldn't vote for some person, for the, for that person, because he had such a distinguished record. And I think what Nikki Haley is trying to do here is too, too, too cute by a half. She's trying to call Biden and Trump old without calling them old. That's my view of the situation. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, that's a 800-848-9222. Now, it looks like Nikki Haley will not be the only woman running for president. You remember Marianne Williamson, best-selling self-help author, Marianne Williamson, who brought sort of a quirky spiritualism to the 2020 presidential race, has announced she is running for the White House again, becoming the first major Democrat to challenge Joe Biden for his party's nomination in 2024. First of all, two things. One, Marianne Williamson is 70 years old. She looks amazing. I mean, I remember... Two or three years ago, Bernie, Bernie McGurk and I would talk about her when she would appear in the debates, and she would say some wacky things once in a while. But both of us remarked oh, what an attractive woman this is. I would, if you just showed me her face and showed me her speaking and let me listen to her speaking, I would never say this woman is 70 years old. So that's why the, what's, age is not a one-size-fits-all equation. I'm glad Marianne Williamson is running because I think uh, voters of all parties deserve at least a token choice. Now, I don't know where her candidacy is going to go. I certainly don't expect her to win the nomination. But at least uh, the voters in Democratic primary states will be able to have a choice. And she, she had a lot of out-of-the-box ideas, which I kind of liked, right? I, I really enjoyed a bunch of different things that she, uh, that, she, that she did during the presidential campaign. And I thought she was a welcome addition to those debates She was not my favorite in those debates. My favorite in those debates was Tulsi Gabbard, followed by Andrew Yang. But I liked her. I liked a lot of what she said. All right. So if you want to weigh in on either of those, either a mental competency test for presidential candidates over the age of 75 or Marianne Williamson declaring her candidacy for president, I would love to hear from you. She said, uh, I feel my 40 years being up close and personal with the trauma of so many thousands of individuals gives me a unique perspective on what's needed to help repair America. We need a politics that treats not just symptoms, but cause. That does not base itself on the crass imperativeness of endless corporate profit, but on the eternal imperatives of our principles and values. Now. I happen to agree with everything she said there, but she didn 't really say anything it 's really just rhetoric there 's nothing concrete, nothing substantive but uh wishing her the best of luck and uh, I hope she 'll come on this show at some point throughout the course of her presidential campaign. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 one two three four five open lines if you want to comment 800-848-9222. let me begin with Alan in queens. Hello there, Alan
3: hey, good morning, Frank. Morning. I happen to agree with you one hundred percent. There should be no uh, mental competency test. Candidates should make their presentation to the public and, uh, and let the public decide if they want to vote for them or not. Besides that, some people are old at 40 and some people are young at 60. It's a matter of genetics and the way you take care of yourself, your diet, and everything else. Uh, and just one quick thing about that uh, SUV. I was driving in Florida with my father. And you you know, Alan, a...
2: let's hold off on that, because the people listening outside of New York don't know what you're talking about and, and don't know what you're responding right, to. right, I'll so, leave that one. but yeah. I
3: agree with you on that, uh, that mental competency. She's not doing that for any pure good reason. Okay, it's of course. Just...
2: of course. Blatant politics. Alan, thank you. The fact that you're agreeing with me twice... Uh, two out of two subjects is probably an indication that your mental competency is not the best. <laughs> I'm just joking. And the other thing I'll just add on the mental competency test. Do you know what they ask on the mental competency test? I mean, it's, it's absurd. It's not in any way a measure of whether you're up for the rigors of the job. You're asked to uh, – ba- you're basically shown three items and asked to say what they are, a house, an elephant, and uh, whatever, let's say a, a gavel. And then repeat that, it, recall that in five minutes. Is that really going to tell you if someone is up to the rigors of the office of president? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, it's just it's just age discrimination. You you remember in the in the '40s and the '60s when you had people like Strom Thurmond and George Wallace running for president? On a blatantly pro segregation racist platform, now they wouldn't go around the country saying that they were racist and pro segregationists. no, they would insert code words they would I, I guess the phrase is dog whistle, which was a phrase by the way, I did not even know until eight years ago. Big shout out to our listener Tom in California who educated me about what a dog whistle was Eight you imagine that? I was so ignorant prior to eight years ago. I had never even heard the term dog whistle. But they would use the dog whistle phrase states' rights. And people in certain communities, people in the South mainly, knew what that was code for. Oh, states' rights. That means segregation. That means we get to keep our segregation. And to me, that's what Nikki Haley is doing. Nikki Haley is using this dog whistle. Oh, well, we need a mental competency test. She's saying, don't vote for those guys because they're old, as far as I could tell. 800-848-9222. 800 oh, 848 Stephen is on Long Island. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Hey.
4: morning. Um, as far as Nikki Haley's proposal, um, I think in this uh, upcoming election, there's a possibility that John Fetterman may be propped up to run for the uh, presidency and he's (laughs) under 70 and he's definitely not competent to be president. So I agree. I agree with you that if you're going to subject one, you got to subject everybody this way. John Fed doesn't get on the debate stage and, um, you know, uh, debate everyone. And as far as the competency test, you're right. I've taken it myself and uh, it's basically a house, a cucumber and a basketball. Right, and you remember that in five minutes. Now, if uh, if she starts shooting missiles over here, because I know a house, a carrot, and a basketball, <laughs> that doesn't make me confident. <laughs> fired back at him.
2: First of all, so Stephen, the point that you raise about John Fetterman is such a good one because uh, look, he is a younger guy and and he was certainly someone whose mental acuity may not have been up to snuff for what voters would like, regardless of if you agree with his politics or not agree with his politics, he's probably someone whose mental acuity would not be where a lot of voters would like their senator's mental acuity to be. And yet under this Nikki Haley proposal, he would not be subjected to this mental competency test. Now, that's that's my point. Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. And shame on me for not thinking of that. Um, now, you, I, I'm thinking you were joking when you said that they would prop John Fetterman up to run for president, right?
4: Well, you know, we're in, a, in an era of checking boxes and merit and competency and experience. Uh, it doesn't really matter anymore because we've seen throughout the country in all levels of government that checking the box lets a lot of people get into the seats of positions. That if they were um, subjected to a competency test, uh, they wouldn't be where they are right now. For crying out loud, I remember when I was, uh, this was 1979, I remember taking the psychological exam for the NYPD. And I was a pretty sharp guy, but I could not believe the, I, I don't know back then if it was considered a competency test, but the psychological exam, it was... Bizarre. Right. You you know,
2: Uh, Stephen, uh, to your point, I know uh, and thank you for the call. I want to try and get to some other people. I know a lot of very intelligent people who've applied to be in the New York City Police Department. And I'm sure this is true of other police departments around the country as well that have failed the psychological examination. Now, that's not what she's proposing. She's not proposing a psychological examination. She's proposing a mental competency test. And look, I don't care what you think of Joe Biden. I don't care what you think of Donald Trump. All Both of them can tell the difference between a tree, a house, and a cucumber. They can. And they're going to be able to recall it in five minutes. They, they are. And by the way, if you doubt that they can, you shouldn't vote for them. You are the the safeguard. You are the arbiter. You are the judge. We should not insert these artificial barriers. You know, I remember after Trump got elected, there were all these proposals to mandate that presidential candidates had to disclose their tax reforms. I thought that was rubbish, too. And if you make the decision that you don't want to vote for someone because they're not disclosing their tax reforms, don't vote for them. But don't make it an arbitrary rule. I am 100% pro-choice. Give me the choice of voting for someone that's over the age of 76, whether they've passed an arbitrary mental competency test or not. Give me the choice to determine who I think is competent. Give me the choice to determine if I determine that someone's tax returns should be a, a, a deal-breaker whether I'm supporting them or not. 800 848 Paul is on Staten Island. Hello, Paul. Hey, good morning, Frank. Morning.
4: This is one of the times where I disagree with you. And I, I, I agree
5: you. with Stephen. The last, the last, <laughs> all right. But I agree with Stephen, too. But, like, now how you say, um, you're saying, if, if you don't, if you don't think he's confident, don't vote for him. But, You don't vote for him, and then they cheat the election, and
2: then you got a case case in point, Joe Biden. We have a a boob in office. Well, okay. I I mean, look, I I think I'm going to thank you. I'm going to end that conversation now, Paul, because you have to get back to work, number one. And number two, um, I, I think this whole idea that Uh, Again, I don't want to get into a stolen election in 2020 kind of a deal. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the, the Fox News suit with Dominion, but it turns out even a lot of the Fox personalities that were peddling some of this stuff, they didn't even believe it. Even Sean Hannity under oath. He said, you know, that he never thought there was any sort of credibility to it. Now, I wish they could make Sean Hannity go under oath before he does his radio program and force him to tell the truth for three hours. But uh, I don't I'm not holding my breath on that. I mean, uh, so I, I think that's such a cop out. Let's pretend for the purposes of this discussion that the election will not be stolen. Just give me your view of the Nikki Haley proposal. Should presidential candidates over the age of 75 have to take a competency test? And uh, we're also talking about if you want to comment on the new presidential candidacy of Marianne Williamson. She spoke to the newspaper The Hill about why she's running in 2024.
6: Well, I certainly want to give the president credit where credit is due. And he did defeat Trump in 2020, and that's a very big deal. But I think the big win in the midterms was the American people, was the American people stepping in. And remember what the um, what the opponents were in the midterm elections. What the American people said no to were a bunch of election deniers, and people who were so outside Uh, the box of anything that we should consider respectful of our democracy. I think the fact that the president was obviously uh, the right man for 2020, uh, that's a very different uh, situation than what we're going to be confronted with in 2024. And uh, no, I don't think that the idea that we should just anoint Joe Biden and uh, just assume that he's the guy for 2024 is a good idea at all.
2: You know, she's got such an interesting accent. I I know she's from Texas originally. But, I mean, it's sort of a pseudo-Texan accent. It's almost like an affectation. I, I kind of dig it. I like it. And I know she's wacky, but um, I'm glad she's running. She'll, be, she'll be, provide a lot of entertainment. I think people like Marianne Williamson run, kind of like Al Sharpton in 2004, Alan Keyes, several of the years that he ran, um, Herman Cain to some extent. They run on the one hand to advance ideas. And on the other hand, they run to build their own brand and so that more people know who they are and that they're able to sell books and get on television. And look, I've thought about that myself, but uh, I really can't afford to not work even for two weeks, let alone take a break to run for president. 800-848-9222. By the way, we're going to go through the mail uh, a little later. If you would like to email me. You can do so at frank.morano at wabcradio.com, and we will read your emails on the air. That's frankm at wabcradio.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
2: Other Side of Midnight I'm Frank Morano. This is Led Zeppelin Cashmere You know it's funny When I was working for the Brooklyn Cyclones uh, 22 years ago There was a 21 years ago There was a pitcher He's still in baseball actually Still pitching uh, That was He's at the end of his career now But there was a Brand new pitcher For the Brooklyn Cyclones By the name of Scott Casmere. And we we decided to make this his entrance theme, so that whenever he would come out to the mound, he would uh, they would they would play this song. Um, he was with the I believe he was with the San Francisco Giants last year. Although I, I stand to be corrected, be, unless he just retired, but I think he's uh, I think he's still in baseball. He's uh, he's he's you know he's getting up there in year. No, I guess he's out. Yeah, he didn't play last year. His la he retired. I guess 2021 was his last season. Not a bad career, though. And this was uh, what we played for him. All right. We're going to get back to your calls in just a moment. Let me tell you what's coming up. Tomorrow, we have the great Ralph Nader on this program tomorrow, who yesterday turned 89 years old. This man is a dynamo. And this man, through his consumer activism and advocacy has saved more lives than almost anybody you've ever heard on the radio. I mean, he's just been tremendous. If you have not seen the it's a little older now. It's almost it's almost 20 years old, but if you nah, it's not that quite. Well, whatever. It's it's uh, almost 20 years old, I think. There's a great documentary about Nader called An Unreasonable Man. It is terrific. It is a terrific documentary. And uh, I really can't recommend it enough. If you... I remember I I took uh, a friend of mine to the movies. I saw this film when it was in the movies, and I took her to the movies to see this, my friend Emily. And uh, she said, you know, before seeing... I'm so glad you took me to this, because before this I really didn't know who Ralph Nader was, except that he was a name on a ballot, and that he was a presidential candidate. And that's all I knew about him. And this documentary really put it really paints a full picture of his life. Warts and all. Warts and all covers bad stuff as well, covers criticism and a bunch of uh, other things. I want to thank a lot of you who reached out to me with different tips to get Carmine to continue to sleep. And yesterday, for whatever reason, and I hope this is the start of a brand new trend for him, yesterday he did not wake up once, slept throughout the whole night. So good job, Carmine. There was a caller uh, who called a week or two ago uh, because I described the situation where Carmine will only drink milk from his bottle. He'll drink water from a sippy cup, but he won't drink milk from his sippy cup. He will only drink it from a bottle. And all the child-rearing experts say that once he's a year, okay, you should make the transition from bottle to sippy cup. But for whatever reason, Carmine is dead set on only drinking milk out of a bottle. It's like if you're drinking wine, you'll only drink it out of a wine glass. That's him. And so one caller called up, and he brought up what I thought was a great idea, which is right in front of him, take the milk from the bottle and pour it into a sippy cup. So my wife and I did that last night, and sure enough, it absolutely did not work. So he would only drink the milk from his bottle. So you know what? It is what it is. He's uh, we're gonna keep giving him his bottle until, uh, in, I don't know. It, hope maybe hopefully before college, but until he's done with the bottle, we're gonna keep giving it to him in the in the bottle. I think. Um, 800-848-9222. We're talking about a bunch of issues, including Nikki Haley's call for competency tests for presidential candidates over the age of 75. As I said, M6,
7: still M6.
8: In the America, I see the permanent politician will finally retire. We'll have term limits for Congress and mandatory mental competency tests for politicians over 75 years old.
2: So she's saying this as an applause line. Uh, I think this is, has all the harm, hallmarks of pure political pandering. 800-848-9222, what do you think? Claude is in Baltimore. Hello, Claude. Frank, how are you doing tonight, buddy? I'm hanging in there. Thanks. Claude, ball. ball. My, my captain drove our fire engine to you about. 83 or
5: 85, what, and then he died. So,
2: Claude, re- repeat the beginning of your sentence. I heard someone was 83 before they died. Who was that? Okay.
5: I was a volunteer firefighter for 20 years
2: uh-huh.
5: in
9: Baltimore County, and our captain was like 85 years old, and he could drive that Mack fire engine like it ain't no tomorrow and could pump that thing like it wasn't nothing. He he knew everything about that truck. So, I mean, you, you tell people they got to take a competency test. Nikki Haley ain't got no chance to snowball to get in. Anyway, but...
2: Well, that's I mean, but be- I—that's I, besides the issue. I, I just want to talk about the idea. Whether right. or not she's got a great chance or no chance or something in between, I want to talk about this idea. Because I know, that, look, there are a lot of people that feel this way. A caller just called up who agreed with this. But I, I think your point is is right on the money. Because essentially, look, there might be some 83-year-olds that right. are not sharp, right? But there might be some seventy three year olds that are not sharp and to assign seventy five as sort of this magic ma- number that you have to be tested, it just strikes me as discriminatory well, i'm fifty six and i'm not very sharp, and I used to be in the law enforcement, and i can 't remember
6: what I put down yesterday. <laughs>
2: How about you? Uh, it's some days I wonder, Claude. Some days I wonder. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Although I did memorize all of the uh, state capital. You th- state capitals. You throw a state at me, I can uh, I can tell you the capital. Alex is in Brooklyn. Hello, Alex. Hey Frank, thanks for
7: taking the call. I think that if go- they're going to mandate mental competency tests. It shouldn't only be for so, for candidates over 75. I think any presidential candidate should be taking this test, because even if you're younger and you can't pass such a test, the American people should know about it. But I agree with you, it shouldn't be mandated. But I think it should be a part of the system, kind of like the debates. You know, you don't have to go to a debate, but it's part of the process. In the primary, you do you debate against your content, the people that are content, um, your opponents and if i want it should become the norm and if you don't take the mental competency test then it's you're going to be looked at bad and like someone that wouldn't be able to pass it and it would have a bad effect on you in whether you can win or not.
2: Yeah, Alex, I, I like your idea a lot more than Nikki Haley's uh, and, uh, because it's applied uniform across the board. You don't have a situation where you're discrimin- discriminating against someone based solely on uh, their age. Tommy in Brooklyn, hello. Hi, uh,
9: how you doing, Frank? Um, my personal opinion is all candidate- candidates regardless of age, should have some kind of mental evaluation along with their physical. And all politicians as well. You know, anybody, Congress legislation, I mean, anybody who becomes a politician has got some kind of mental problem, right? Well, uh, it's true. that. Well Yeah,
2: I mean, psychological problem is one issue. Mental competency is another. Like, for instance, right. most people think that after Woodrow Wilson had his stroke, that he was completely unfit to hold the presidency, and yet he was still the president. had there been some sort of mental competency test now, and he was actually thinking about running for president again in 20, in 1920 a hundred years ago. so um, had he there been some sort of mental competency test, that would have uh, that would have caught that presumably. but I got news for you, he was under the age of 75.
9: It's true that some people have some degradation of mental acuity, and and some people keep their f- faculties until they're, uh, uh till they're you know forever. You know, my grandmother was ninety six years old when she passed, and uh, God bless her, and and she had a wit and everything right to the end. You know, uh, same thing with and, my uh, grandmother.
2: She was ninety five, just uh, just a month short no, of ninety six. Same thing, and um, uh, yeah, I, I so look and thank you, Tommy. The fundamental issue here is there are different, different. Points of different people's lives in which they get too old to cut the mustard, for lack of a better description. For some people, it's 70. For some people, it's 90. For others, it's 85. Other people, like my grandmother and Tommy's grandmother, they never lose it. And I hope that's the condition that I'm in. So it's funny. My wife and I were talking yesterday because, obviously, you know, we're we're trying to pay some bills and uh, pay off some debt and pay for some stuff in the house. And she was uh, trying to tell me, I don't want to get into too much detail here, but she was trying to tell me that I should lower the amount that I'm contributing to my Roth IRA to my uh, 401k so that we have more money to pay our bills. Now And I said, well, I don't really want to do that because I want to fully fund our retirement and everything like that. And she said, you've said a hundred times, you're never going to retire. she said, you're saving all this money now when we need to pay bills when you've made very clear that you're never going to retire. Now, I said that's true. I can't argue with that, but that's my plan now. I may get to a point where I'm 75 or 80, and I have no idea what's going on. I don't even know my own name, let alone uh, let alone Philo T. Farnsworth's name eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Simon is in Brooklyn. Hello, Simon.
10: Yeah, Frankie, good evening. Um I think what you're saying is about the you know, about the states and all that stuff is one thing. What I think uh, any pres anyone's gonna offer president it's a it's you 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 have a whole country it's like a ceo of a company you know if you want to be a ceo of ibm or any other company you got to go to business school they should be they should know what they're doing main thing business school because you're running a whole a whole i think a major company the biggest company in the world is the united states and that's why we're 30 trillion dollars in debt we shouldn't be 30 trillion dollars in debt we should, you know they need someone who knows business Knows how to run a country, well, Simon,
2: and, uh, uh, thank you to
10: make
2: a difference, yeah, so. uh, thank you, and I don't know that that's speaking directly to the mental competency issue, but as far as why we're thirty trillion dollars in debt, I'm going to give you my answer as to why we're thirty trillion dollars in debt. We are you, you ever read the book, Lord of the Flies. I haven't read a lot of fiction in a long time, but I read that book when I was in high school, and one of the characters, maybe even junior high school, when one of the characters says. Because they think there's this beast loose on the island. And one of the characters, I think it's uh, Piggy, says something along the lines of, maybe the beast is us. Right? And it was a very profound thing um, to say. But the re- part of the reason that we have a $30 trillion debt, you can't just blame it on Biden. You can't just blame it on Trump. You have to look in the mirror. You have to blame us, because this country as a whole has both a low-tax mentality and a big-government mentality. People don't like to pay taxes, and people love stuff. They love highways. They love Medicare. They love Social Security. They love a military that's the biggest, baddest, and uh, most equipped in the world. They love um, you know, if they lose their job during COVID, uh, they love uh, getting a check from the government. People love getting stuff, whatever that stuff is. They love seeing uh, the uh, their favorite arts program funded. They love cancer research funded. They love Alzheimer's funded. They love stuff funded. But they also love getting tax cuts. So what we've had over the course of the last 50 years is, is politicians who will cater to both of those desires on the part of the public. Republicans are a little bit quicker to issue tax cuts. Democrats are a little bit quicker to issue massive spending. But you have this dance that bo- both of the major parties do in Washington, and they just borrow, 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 borrow. And the amount of borrowing that we've done over the course of the last 20 years is alarming. The debt to... G- oh, again, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but he got me in a debt, you know, tangent. I think this is going to be one of those shows, folks. In fact, wake the kids, call the neighbors, tell them Frank's in a tangenty mood, right? There's no telling where this show could go today. But um, over the last 20... Right now, where we are as a country, the debt-to-GDP ratio is higher it's, uh, than almost any point in American history since World War II. Now, you could understand what, during World War II and the Great Depression why we needed to run up that debt. But over the last 20 years, we've just been running it up, running it up, running it up. And uh, since COVID, it has just gone up alarming levels. And it shows no sign of stopping. We are no close to having a government that balances its books anytime soon. And a lot of people are forecasting that we could be headed towards a recession. If that happens, forget about it. Uh, Then if the markets take a dip, we could be seeing a very, very alarming debt problem. But you know what? It's not a sexy issue. So no one talks about it. The only presidential candidate that talked about it in 2016 was Rand Paul. To his credit. And you saw where that got him. It's not a sexy issue at all. You know, um, Republican voters want to hear about tax cuts. They want to hear about funding for cops. They want to hear about things like that. Democratic voters want to hear about uh, paying for health care. They want to hear about mitigating climate change. They want to hear about things of that nature. So who is the constituency for reducing the debt and reducing the deficit? Nobody. It's, it was me and Ross Perot, and now that Ross Perot's gone, it's pretty much just me. So, 800-848-9222. We'll continue in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
10: Boat was one as we sail into the mystic. Oh, I hear the sailors cry. Smell the sea and feel the sky.
11: Let your soul and spirit fly. Into
12: Where that
8: foghorn blows,
12: I will be coming home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when the foghorn blows, I wanna hear it. I
8: don't have.
2: The Great Van Morrison, Into the Mystic, another selection by Diana McCoy, the daughter of uh, former New York State Lieutenant Governor Betsy McCoy, and uh, a columnist for the New York Post. Hey, let me tell you what's coming up. Coming up in our third hour, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk with Brian Deer. You know what happened 25 years ago this week? What happened 25 years ago this week? is there was a big study that came out showing a link between autism and the measles vaccine, measles, mumps, and rubella. And it turned out, and very credible people were, would go all over the pe- place repeating this. And there was a study, and there was a paper, and people were panicked about this. There were lawsuits, there was a lot of discussion on radio and TV, especially on the IMIS program. And then it turned out it was all bunk. It was complete nonsense. There was no link between autism and the measles vaccine. No link. And that was disproven by a terrific investigative journalist named Brian Deer. He's going to join me in the third hour because there are people that still believe this, that there's a link between the measles vaccine and um, autism. And What I'm afraid that it might lead to is people not getting their children vaccinated for measles. You know, it's funny. I have a a neighbor, wonderful guy, police officer. And, you know, our neighborhood, it's like a perpetual block party, especially once the sun uh, starts coming out a little bit, as it will with the disaster that we call daylight saving time. And. All of a sudden, uh, he tells me, the other not the other day, but a couple of months ago, and he meant it very well-intentioned. He said, Frank, be careful with the vaccines. And I'd heard this from other people, you know, um, credible people, intelligent people. He said, my son is autistic, and before he got his vaccines, he was totally normal. And I've heard that version of events from a lot of people. So there's a lot of people that still believe this. And I don't doubt their intentions and their intentions in warning others. So we're going to talk with Brian Deer in the third hour about what the science actually says. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Now, I have to mention this, and then we'll go back to your calls. One of the things that we've covered on this program a great deal, is the field of cryptozoology, the idea of the Loch Ness Monster, the idea of the Yeti, the idea of Bigfoot or the the Sasquatch. There's all these mythical creatures that are running around out there. The Jersey Devil. Who knows how many of them are real? Well, apparently, there is one mythical creature that is coming a step closer to credibility. I am going to link to this article on my Facebook page Facebook.com slash Morano fan. The president of Mexico, and you got to see this picture. The president of Mexico, who they call AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who some people call a populist, others call an autocrat. And it's funny, even though he was kind of a, I think he's as corrupt as the day is long uh, and has a total deal going with the Mexican drug cartels. But that's a story for another day. He um, even though he's kind of a, a leftist populist, he was much he seemed to have a much better working relationship with Trump than he does with Biden, who's probably a little closer to him ideologically. But anyway, the president of Mexico tweeted an image and you could see it on my Facebook page, Facebook.com dot slash Morano fan of what he said was an alux, which is a legendary elf like creature. News outlets said it looked like a 2021 photo of another questionable creature. So in Mayan culture, an alux is believed to be a mischievous elf-like being that lives in the woods, a creature of folklore similar to leprechauns, unicorns, mermaids, and the Loch Ness Monster. So it was a surprise on Saturday when the president of Mexico shared a picture on Twitter of what he claimed was an alux. The image shows, and you could see it, what appears to be a figure with two glowing eyes crouched in a tree. There are very few discerning details in the photo, which appears to have been taken at night. And he writes, the president writes, everything is mystical. That's a quote. The president's tweet was liked more than uh, 40,000 times, and it drew thousands of comments from many users who did not seem to take it seriously. Mr. Lopez Obrador Said the photo was taken last week by an engineer. He did not identify the engineer, but said the photo came from work on a project that he has backed, the Maya train. Which is a railway that is expected to be nearly 1,000 miles long that's been pitched as a way to develop Mexico's poorest region. The image didn't have what they call metadata. So it's unclear when the photo was taken or by whom. Multiple Mexican news outlets reported that the image shared by the president was extremely similar to one a couple of years ago. David Stewart, an art history professor at the University of Texas at Austin, whose research Mayan civilization, said that Aluxes were known by Mayans primarily in the northern region of the Yucatan Peninsula as trickster characters who lived in the forest. Now, I had this on my list yesterday, so let me mention it before we run out of time. The uh, w- We talked about the Roald Dahl books being saved. Um, so they're going to be available in both the new PC version and the original, what they call classic version. Well, you're not going to believe who is on the sh- – sh- chopping block is not the right word, but uh, who is on the editing block now, none other than uh, the one not and only on
13: – I need Counter. another
14: thousand –
13: Admire
2: your courage, Miss uh...
14: Trench. Sylvia Trench.
9: I admire your luck, Mr.
11: Bond. James Bond.
2: James Bond uh, novels are being reissued with the racial references removed. The changes to the spy novels include the removal of the N-word and omitting references to the ethnicity of minor characters. I think uh, if you know me and you know my view of uh, editing works of literature for political correctness purposes – I think you have a pretty good idea of what my opinion is on this. If you've never heard this show before, much like Groucho Marx and his position on everything, I am 100% against it. But on the plus side, maybe it will get more people exposed to the classic works of Ian Fleming and the legendary character he created, the one and only.
15: Bond. Bullets do not kill. It is the finger
16: that pulls the trigger. Exactly. I am now aiming precisely at your groin. So speak, or forever
1: hold your peace. I have never seen Mr. Scaramanga on a Cospa bullet basis.
16: He must be your best customer.
0: That is true, but unfortunately, he seems only to fire them occasionally.
16: When was the uh, last shipment, Mr. Bond? This is impossible. I can't. You are quite right. An inch too low.
2: Oh. Ah, That is great. So Ian Fleming Productions – oh, excuse me. Ian Fleming Publications, LTD, owns the rights to the author's work. They employed sensitivity writers – oh, my goodness – to look at the text and make recommendations for changes. Uh, My view is these works of art should be – which is what they are – these works of art should be left – as they are and should not be changed. I don't need to say anything more you could take everything that I said about the Roald Dahl books and you can apply it to James Bond and uh, all the scenarios that James Bond finds himself in whether he's betting a beautiful woman whether he's chasing a Russian spy or he's meeting Blofeld James Bond
15: allow me to introduce myself I am Ernst Stavro Blofeld. They told me you were assassinated in Hong Kong. Yes, this is my second life. You only lived twice, Mr. Bond.
2: 800-848-9222. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David.
10: Yes, that was Donald Pleasance, the best. That's right. Out of very good.
2: Well done.
10: Yes, I'm very familiar with James Bond. Um, to get back to the uh, Nikki Haley Thing that she brought up. Um, I'm inclined to agree with you. And I think that her proposal, which is a gimmick, is also insulting to voters, because just like you said, most of us are sensible. We can judge a candidate's intelligence and competency without having them take a test, especially age-related, because Nikki Haley, in my opinion, should be forced to take an IQ test. But we're
2: not going to have that, are we? <laughs> hey, well, that. that's something that you might be able to get Democrats and Republicans by. Uh, 800-848-9222. Uh, still to come, we have the mail. You can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Um, and something fun next hour. We'll get into it. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Keep asking questions. in the news that tug at my emotional heartstrings more than stories that involve dogs. And, uh, you know, for some reason, I don't know why, because I don't know, I don't know why I'm sure a psychologist would have a field day, but I get so much more emotionally moved when I see a story about a dog being abused or mistreated or killed than I do when I see the same story happening to a human. And I'm not proud of that. That's just, I'm being honest. That's the way it is. And uh, and look, it's much worse to kill a human being than it is to kill a dog. 100%. Acknowledge. But for some reason, stories about dogs, they stick with me and they strike an emotional chord with me. As such, there's a story out of Philadelphia that you might have seen. Philadelphians have spent the last week or two torn over whether an off-duty FBI agent was too quick to shoot and kill a pit bull that attacked their dog on a busy downtown street. And the case is still very much in play. Uh if you haven't heard about this, it's an interesting it's an interesting case. So the incident happened not last Monday, but the previous Monday around eight PM outside the terrain apartments in Center City, if you're familiar with Philadelphia. And the Pitbull's owner has called the agent responsible for this reckless. And they have indicated that uh, that the the agent is not exactly telling the full truth. The pitbull's owner called the agent reckless for shooting the dog and endangering her and nearby pedestrians. The FBI has said it was told the agent was protecting their own pet. Philadelphia police and the FBI are investigating the shooting. So far, neither agency would disclose the identity of the agent. I get that. Okay, whether he acted properly or he acted improperly, you don't want his picture on the front page of every newspaper in Pennsylvania and then have this agent while he's trying to do his job. I don't know if he's been reassigned or assigned to desk duty, but you don't want this agent being heckled by people that may feel one way or another about this case. So I I understand why. They have not disclosed the agent's identity yet. The spokesperson for the Philadelphia police, Eric Grip, told Axios that the police department won't publicly release video of the incident, but that prosecutors could later choose to release footage if they bring a case against the agent. Well, see, that I do have a problem with. Why is the police department not releasing video of this? Even if you have to disguise the agent's face, pixelate his face or something, an incident like this, somebody, I don't care if he's an FBI agent, someone shooting a dog and killing a dog in the midst of a crowded street and people saying that the shooter acted improperly, you're damn right we want to see that video. Damn right we want to see it. Now, there's no timeline for when the department will hand over its investigative findings To prosecutors for review. As word of the shooting spread on social media, animal rights activists from Revolution Philadelphia gathered last Tuesday outside FBI headquarters on Arch Street to demand justice for Mia, the pit bull, and accountability for the agent involved. The group has questioned whether the agent's use of force violated bureau policies. Mia's owner Maria Esser told reporters that her dog was on a three-foot leash and she felt like the agent prematurely opened fire before giving her a chance to intervene in the fight. Here's a quote um, from Maria's sister, Gabriella Esser. Mia was shot and killed because she was seen as a threatening breed. You know, it's funny. And if you want to comment on this, you can. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. There's been a lot of talk over the years when it comes to policing of racial profiling and uh, that kind of thing. And that's one area. But I'm wondering if this pit bull was shot because of breed profiling. Was this FBI agent who was off duty at the time, uh, apparently, was this FBI agent guilty of breed profiling? Was Mia the Pitbull guilty of nothing more of barking while pit bull? You've heard of driving while black? Is this a case of barking while pit bull? So um, the FBI agent, according to Gabriella Esser, the owner of the dog's sister, the FBI agent acted out of fear. And fragility. Now, it's difficult for us to know. It's difficult for us to make any judgment on this until we see the video. Right? I mean, could—it's a he said, she said until then. On the other side, legal experts um, have said it's unlikely that the agent will face criminal charges. It is legal in Pennsylvania to kill an animal that's posing a threat to a human or another animal. Plus, the Law Enforcement Officer Safety Act of 2004 allows federal officers to carry concealed weapons with few limitations. Kristen Bergston of the animal law firm told Billy Penn that witnesses would have to come with contradictory accounts. Otherwise, it's going to be very difficult to get around the affirmative defense of the dog was attacking me. Here was what one Rittenhouse Square resident told CBS News in Philadelphia.
15: As I was coming up to the window is when I heard the bang. Um, I didn't really see exactly what was going on, but I heard the bang, saw what I presumed to be uh, the woman shooting the dog. Um, and then uh, I kind of was like, yeah, let me duck for cover.
2: So he referred to it as a woman shooting the dog. So I guess it was a female agent. Curious what you think of this. I'll tell you, and look, maybe I'm maybe this is my own biases showing. I am very skeptical when I hear a, an FBI agent shooting someone off duty. Very skeptical. There is, and why am I skeptical? I've paid attention to a lot of federal cases over the years. And I do think that there's a certain element of arrogance and hubris. That goes on with many FBI agents I have encountered and look, I'm friends with FBI agents. I've interviewed hundreds of FBI agents over the years. I've talked with probably hundreds more off air. Most of them are great folks, but there are a lot of people. I don't know whether they become FBI agents because they have this mentality or whether there's something in the Bureau that feeds this mentality. There's a lot of people that walk around with their FBI agent uh, IDs and shield, and they kind of, for lack of a better expression, they think who they are. They think that certain rules don't apply to them. And it doesn't just apply to John Connolly, as as we talked about with the Whitey Bulger case, or Lindley DeVecchio, as we talked about with the Greg Scarpa case. This goes on all the time. All the time. And, you you know, justthenews.com, they were, uh, John Solomon, I think he goes on 10 talk shows a day, right? I think there's a rule that uh, you're not actually a real talk show until you have John Solomon on. They're actually threatening to revoke our talk show license because we've never had John Solomon on. That's his website. And, uh, They did something really interesting. They published five years' worth of disciplinary records of FBI agents. And this is the FBI's Office of Professional Responsibility, uh, all the misconduct cases by bureau employees and what punishment was meted out. And what's amazing, and you could look through this yourself, is there was tremendous misconduct instances of drinking and driving, instances of losing your weapons, uh, instances of, um, you know, sexual harassment. And unfortunately, what looks like occurred in almost every one of these situations, except for a couple of the sexual harassment incidents, these people kept their jobs. So even once you get caught losing your gun. Even once you get caught, um, even once you get caught drinking and driving, you're still on the job. So, um, and there's a lot of other, again, it's it actually goes back to 2017. So, um, to me, I, I was very alarmed when I read these. So, you have uh, people filing false information on a security form, DUI. Unprofessional conduct, misuse of position, um, you have um, loss of badge, uh, all sorts of other instances of misconduct, failure to pay debts, false information and security documents, uh, source handling issues. And almost all of these agents are still working. So I think there might be something in the Bureau that leads agents to think, oh, well, that's a pitbull. I'm an FBI agent. Oh, sure, I'm off duty. I'm not in the midst of performing an investigation or carrying out an arrest or anything like that, but why take a chance? Let me shoot this pit bull before he does something to my dog. Look, I'm hesitant to jump to conclusions, but I find this very alarming. Curious what you think. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Marie is on Long Island. Hello. Good morning, uh, Frank. Did I miss Ralph Nader? Real quick. No, tomorrow. He's coming out tomorrow. Oh, thank you, love. Anyway,
10: I'm a big time, big time uh pit bull advocate. I do shelter work. I'm on my third rescue of a pit bull. Now, I don't really know the whole story, but was the the pit bull on the property of the house or
13: well they were walking the they were walking the on booth. the sidewalk. Okay.
2: Was that other pit bull... Oh behind the fence or was No, loose. no, they were all walking. The 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 one FBI agent was walking with her dog and then this one woman was walking with her dog on a leash. Okay. Well, I don't know.
10: And that football player gets me really mad sometimes. Oh,
2: Which one? O.J. Simpson? Did. No, Vic. Oh, Michael Vick. Right. Okay. Well, I know, but uh, uh I that he's not a you know part what of they this. Do?
9: You know, dog fighting is worldwide still. Dog fighting, because we're on the subject, and those are the dogs that are used mostly. It's a real sick thing. I agree, I, I agree with
2: cringe. you. Cringe. I agree with you. Cringe. I agree with you completely. 800 848 9222. That's 800 848 9222. George is in Manhattan. Hello, George.
11: George. Hey uh, Frank, how are you doing?
2: I'm Hope wonderful. You're George.
11: Well, you and Thank your, you, uh, you know, uh, everybody's kids, great, uh, George. What's everybody. on your mind? What's on your mind? All right. Now, regarding, did you, uh, you know, um, I uh, uh was listening to you a little while ago. I think an hour or so ago, I had been away, you know, from uh, the radio, and then suddenly I did uh, hear something to the effect that uh, you know callers or listeners can call. And ask you how to, uh, you know, capitals, etc., uh, of countries. Well, if you want, uh, yeah, but, no, uh, well, not
2: countries, but of states.
11: Oh, of states, not countries. Not yet.
2: Give me another day or two. I'll, I'll have all the okay. world capitals memorized. I'll tell you as one well. thing, by the way. Yes.
11: Uh, f- for example, South Africa has three capitals. I'm aware of that.
2: I'm aware of that. Okay.
11: Now I'll tell you another thing. Now that's excellent homework for kids. Even some grown ups, because that's something you got to do repeatedly in Uh, order to memorize. Absolutely. Right. Constantly, you got to go back. For example, here are some homework uh, suggestions. Uh, For example, memorizing anagrams, pangrams, for example, Uh, learning touch typing, you know, without looking at the keys, uh, which is sight typing, you know, Uh, IQ tests. You can improve your IQ by a certain percentage, approximately, I would say, ten to fifteen percent overall. Uh, you know, uh, during a lifetime. George, if you I, I appreciate it. it. I,
2: I just want to get to some calls on the pit bull issue and uh, what people think of this FBI agent that uh, that killed this dog. And if you agree with me that the full video should be released pronto, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two, because it seems to me. That somebody—I don't know whether it's the Philadelphia Police Department or the FBI or someone else—but it seems to me like somebody is trying to cover something up. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Tommy is on Staten Island. Hello, Tommy.
4: Hey, what's up, Frank? Great show. Thank you. Uh it's not—it's not just—it's it, not just, it's not just the FBI agents. It's all cops. Because, uh, but, but the video should be shown, and it's all cops.
2: Every cop, doesn't every pit bull.
4: You know. Oh, oh! Every pit
2: bull, you're saying?
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh-huh. my wife went to me. And my wife I had a few friends over in my yard. We were all out, and um, somebody called the cops, and they and they just burst in my gate, my backyard, and of course, you know, the dog's gonna go a little crazy, and they caught the dog was on my wife's lap, and he he actually had the the the, the stolen turn around and say if that dog
2: would have came at me, I would have shot him. Well, you know, so that does sort of go to my point, which is we hear so much about racial profiling when it comes to law enforcement. I think when it comes to dogs, there's an issue with breed profiling. I think maybe law enforcement agents, and if you say it applies to local cops as well, uh, I'll, I'll take your word for it. But I think law enforcement agents are a little too quick. To shoot pit bulls. And look, Uh, maybe uh, maybe you can't blame them. Maybe uh, because of the history of pit bulls um, and their reputation, maybe better safe than sorry. But in this instance, while the dog was still on the leash and the woman says she could control him, I want to see this video. And I think it's incredibly damning that they won't show it.
4: Yeah, I got a small little leash for my dog. Real small. It's like three feet. That dog stays by my side. And... If she had that leash that I had, it, it, she had total
2: control of the dog. Total control. Well, again, so, and thank you, Tommy. And there's no way to know until they release the video. So why don't they release the video? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two. See, whenever a government agency chooses not to disclose something, I get very suspicious. Very suspicious eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 Bobby is on the upper west side. Hello, Bobby hey hey so so i'm I'm hoping that you have
0: so much fun with your son Carmine when you're with him because i I was like the fun
11: dad with my two kids, and um even though I didn't make a lot of money. My wife was, she
2: still is. Thank you. I appreciate the advice there, Bobby. All right, we're going to continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222, 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
2: if you want to comment on uh, anything we are talking about. We're going to go through the mail in about five minutes. If you would like to be heard via email, you can email me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.m-o-r-a-n-o at wabcradio.com. Well, I mentioned um, yesterday that my wife and I, we had no plans both Friday and Saturday Last weekend, so we did something that I don't think that we've done since our child was born, which is we watched two movies last weekend, one on Friday, one on Saturday. Friday, I told you we watched everything everywhere all at once, which I loved, and my wife kind of liked. That's the best description. Saturday, we watched another one of the best picture nominees. This one is called "Tar." This was really interesting. It's a psychological drama uh, starring Kate Blanchett. And Blanchett plays Lydia Tarr, a renowned conductor who ends up, I don't want to give too much away because I find you're better off, you know, going in not knowing anything a lot of the time. But she ends up getting accused of a major scandal. And I really liked it. I liked it, I'll say. uh, I really liked it. It was certainly well made. The acting is phenomenal. The absolutely phenomenal. The music is tremendous. It is shot beautifully. It is very artistically pleasing. Uh, Kate Blanchett was on CBS Sunday morning talking about how she prepared for playing the lead role of uh, Lydia Tarr.
15: I played the piano as a schoolgirl, had schoolgirl German. I had to do a lot of preparation, but, I mean, look, an audience couldn't be less interested in in an actor's homework because it's like, look how hard I worked. You know, it's like, who cares?
2: But you love the homework.
15: I do. I mean, I found the whole thing
2: fascinating. And, look, it does come across as a wonderfully made film. I found it to be way too long. Honestly, it's another one of these films that's over two and a half hours long. I also found it very talky at times, and to be honest, at times, a little boring. They uh, There were some conversations in this, and some scenes in this picture that were, it seems like eight minutes that could have been two minutes, and that happened again and again, so... That was my criticism of it. I did like it, though. My wife loved it. That was her reaction. She said she loved it. And I'll tell you what I did like about it. It sort of is, I viewed it as a an anti-cancel culture film. And I like that one of the main characters who is a lesbian, she has no problem sticking up for heterosexual, dead white musicians like uh, Bach, for instance. So I, I learned a little bit about music, watching the films, classical music and what it's like to conduct an orchestra and that whole thing. And uh, I really I really enjoyed it, not as much as my wife did. And look, there were times it was very slow, very slow moving. But what I also liked about it is, much like a lot of scandals, It makes clear that not everything is black and white. There's a whole lot of gray areas. Unless you, for instance, with the Me Too scandal, unless you um, really raped someone, right? Like a Harvey Weinstein kind of a deal. I don't think you losing your job, like doing what Charlie Rose did or uh, Louis C.K. did or uh, a number of the other people that were Accused of sexual harassment. I don't think that that should be a professional death sentence. I don't. I've never felt this way. I think people should not be defined by the worst moment they've ever had. And what I liked about this picture. Tar we're talking about. Is that it makes clear that the person who can be the predator. Can also be the victim and at times it reminded me a little bit of all about Eve um, all about Eve, I think is a much more enjoyable film but i um i I like this very much a o Scott of the New York Times said this, and uh, I think a lot of people would agree with this i 'm not sure i've ever seen a movie quite like tar field that 's the writer and director Field balances. Apollonian restraint with Dionysian frenzy. Tar is, you know, you could tell the guy writes for the Times, right? Tar is meticulously controlled and also scarily wild. Field finds a new way of posing the perennial question about separating the artist from the art, right? What were we talking about yesterday with Dilbert? A question that he suggests can only be answered by another question. Are you crazy? We don't care about Tar because she's an artist. We care about her because she's art. So I thought that was interesting. L.A. Times regarded the film as both a superb character study and a highly persuasive piece of world building. So I liked it. I thought it could have been a lot shorter, but my wife loved it. I'll play you the trailer for uh, the film Tar, which is nominated for a bunch of Oscars, including Best Picture. (laughs) If you're here, then you already know who she is. Lydia Tarr is many things. As a conductor, Tarr began her career with the Cleveland Orchestra, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, until she had last arrived here at our own New York Philharmonic. In 2013, Berlin elected Tar as its principal conductor, and she's remained there ever since. Lydia Tarr has also written music for the stage and screen. She is one of only 15 EGOTs, meaning those who have won all four major entertainment awards. Thank you for joining us, Maestro.
8: Thank you.
11: How's the writing going? Not
16: so well.
6: I keep hearing something.
16: Schopenhauer measured a man's intelligence against his sensitivity to noise.
6: Do you ever f- find yourself overwhelmed by emotion?
8: Yes. Yes, it does happen.
6: We
15: have a problem.
8: Your identity.
15: You must, in fact, stand in front of the public and God and deliver yourself.
2: So that is Tar. Which uh, look, I I haven't seen Elvis yet. I'm looking forward to seeing that. I uh, I have. I'm not going to see Avatar. I haven't seen Triangle of Sadness, but uh, so I've seen everything everywhere All at once, I've seen Top Gun, I've seen The Fablemans, I've seen Tar and um, maybe one or two. Oh, I, uh, one or two others. But of the ones that I've seen so far, so far, I think my favorite is still Top Gun of all the Best Picture nominees, although that is never the kind of film that the pre- prestigious Academy would ever, ever think of honoring. 800-848-9222. Marianne is in Newburgh. Hello, Marianne.
13: Hello, Frank. Hi. I like. I love your show. Thank you. I just, yes, I just wanted to um, chime in a little bit on the uh, pit bull situation. Great. I, I'm an, I, I'm a big animal rescuer lover. I'm like your wife. I rescue feral cats and and dogs also when they come in our way. <laughs> so, um, what well, the story was that uh, they were walking the two dogs. Yeah. Well, and, so my uh, understanding, was, Go ahead. No, you go ahead.
2: Yeah. Uh, so my understanding is that um, that uh, what occurred here is that this FBI agent, um, this happened last Monday, around 8 p.m. at night, crowded area of town. And the FBI agent was walking her dog and the other woman was walking her her dog, which happened to be a pit bull to a busy street, busy downtown street. And uh, the two dogs uh, start uh, getting into a fight, and the oh. FBI agent shoots the pit bull. The FBI oh. saying says that the agent had reason to think that uh, the pit bull was not in a position to be controlled, that, uh, that the dog might get killed or that her dog might get killed or that uh, other people would be in danger. And the owner of the pit bull is saying that's not the case, that um, she was still holding the leash, which was only two feet, and she could have uh, controlled the dog and there was not a need, and that the FBI agent shot the pit bull too quickly.
13: But oh, I, I what, mean, just from what the way it sounds, it, it sounds like uh, more more ways to, to 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 deter the two dogs away from each other would have been uh, a better uh, strategy, um, like um, uh, even if you had a stick in your hand or something just to kind of shoo, shoo like that. Yeah, well, I, 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 I agree. certainly agree
2: with you. Uh, but what's so alarming about this, in my view, is that uh, they're still not releasing um they're still not releasing the video of this.
13: Wow. So it makes you wonder. Yeah.
2: Now, the Philadelphia Inquirer, they have said that um that this pitbull was a uh problem dog. And th- by the way, the Phil they, they actually did release her name. Uh I was reading an older article before. So the uh the agent's name is Jacqueline McGuire. And less than apparently less than a month before Jacqueline McGuire shot and killed a pit bull uh, as it reportedly attacked her smaller dog. That pit bull seriously injured another dog requiring three surgeries and $9,000 in vet bills. That's according to residents of the building where the earlier earlier incident took place. So, look, there seems to be two very different sides of this story, but I think a lot of this uh, could be obviated if the police would just release the video.
13: Oh, that would be interesting. Yes, I, I would love to see that.
2: Yeah, uh, same here.
13: So, well, I just, I I thought the story was very interesting. Thank you. And, you know, because I I, I feel for pit bulls. I feel that, um, you know, you do see a pit bull coming your way when you're walking your dogs. And it is a little frightening. But I what I do carry on me is um, I carry, I get laughed at. I carry bear spray um, just in case a, a, any animal would come up that can protect my dogs. And I also carry um, like a um, police um, expandable baton. I mean, it probably wouldn't hit the dog, but it might just I could yell and just say, go away. Sure. Oh, no, no, absolutely. The thing
2: that you have to be careful of, and you probably already know this, the thing that you have to be careful of. And I'm not just talking to you, Marianne, but anybody that might be carrying bear spray is um a lot of times when you're whipping out the bear spray, whether you're being attacked by an animal or a knife wielding or gun wielding thug, a lot of times your your adrenaline is is pumping and you're trying to move very quickly because you're in the midst of being attacked and what a lot of people unfortunately who try to spray their assailant with bear spray do is they end up spraying themselves in the eye so you got to be it. very yeah. careful
13: i totally get that because i i know i've i've sprayed it accidentally i had it in my pocket and i sprayed it at myself so i totally get how that could happen but um yeah it's sad because it, if, if lethal force didn't have to be used you know uh, you know it seems sad to kill a dog and. I don't, like, you're saying the dog, uh, different people are saying different things about the dog. Right, but, so... Uh, She's a gentle the, dog,
2: you know? Right, well, so the <laughs> owner did this series of TV interviews uh, where she portrayed her side of the story. She said there was no reason for her dog to get killed, her dog Mia, seven-year-old Pitbull, and she was in the midst of this fracas with a Siberian Husky mix that lived in the same apartment complex. So um, the, or, or the 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 residents who saw this story said wait a minute this dog's not exactly a well-behaved dog that dog bit our dog on the on the leg and oh, um wow. was was a problem so look uh, look there there are two sides to every story but i still want to see the video
13: oh yeah i I'll, I'll be looking for it too um to come out do you think that like the local news or or where it would be seen or just Search for it or, you know,
2: obviously, you know, the police have to uh, or the prosecutors have to make the decision to release the video. But until they release it, then uh, obviously none of us can see it.
13: Yes, that's of course. Yes. Well, thank you so much. I I just um, wanted to weigh in on it and, you know, see what, um, you know, get the get the full story. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. appreciate it.
2: So uh, this agent she was appointed the special agent in charge of the FBI's Philadelphia office in 2021. So this is not an ordinary agent. This is the FBI special agent in charge of the Philadelphia field office. Um, So I don't know. According to one source who spoke to the Philadelphia Inquirer on condition of anonymity to discuss the probe, the video showed McGuire sitting on a bench with her small dog in her lap, When the pit bull rushed forward, dragging along her owner and snatched the agent's dog off her lap and began aggressively shaking it. McGuire, and this is from the Philadelphia Inquirer, McGuire threw herself into the fray, attempting to separate the animals, according to a source, before she eventually drew her weapon, placed it directly against the pit bull's hide and fired. So far, police have refused to release that footage publicly. In a statement to The Inquirer and an interview with CBS 3, Maria Esser and her family dispute that account. They describe Mia as a loyal and loving dog and McGuire's use of force as reckless and a blatant disregard for the safety of anyone during anyone that was around during the incident. She said um, to Philadelphia 3... Our dogs got into an altercation, her dog started barking at my dog, and Mia had gotten a hold of McGuire's dog harness. By the time I went down to get her off, this woman shot my dog. So, I mean, I don't know. Lisa Palo is a journalist who lives in the building. She said, wait a minute, three weeks ago that dog put another dog in a cast. It's something like that happens, you put a muzzle on your dog before you take it out. Well, there's some truth to that too, right? 800 848 9222. That's 800 848 9222. Let's see. I'm just kidding. a lot of interesting people on hold. I'm going to go in whoever's been holding the longest here. Uh, Rich is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Rich.
0: Good morning, Frank. Morning. Um, um, we do not know the true financial position of the federal government. Because the federal government does not have, at least not for public consumption, a capital assets budget and a capital assets accounting system.
2: Now, Rich, for those of us that uh, are not too bright, what's what 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 are each of those? What's a capital assets accounting system? What's a capital assets budget?
0: Okay, well, capital assets are when they are acquired are amortized over their expected useful lifetime. Oh,
2: I see. So like in a city or a state budget, we would have the operating budget and the capital budget. Correct. Gotcha. Okay. And
0: even even in business budgets. And just about every adult person knows that it's okay to borrow, to purchase a residence or a motor vehicle, your motor vehicle or uh, even furniture. But the f- at least for public consumption, the federal government does not do that. So the true financial position of the federal government is probably much better than advertised.
11: Oh, okay.
0: The federal government purchases lots of buildings, vehicles, uh, furniture, computers, uh, they have national parks, national uh, uh uh well i can't remember. other national things they have oil fields uh military installations um even during peacetime military capital assets mm-hmm. like planes and tanks and stuff the b-52 is still in use and that was built in the 50s and 60s.
5: Yeah,
2: well that's a good point. That's a good point, Rich. And um you know that would probably um shed a much truer a much truer picture of the federal government's finances. Can't argue with you there, Rich. Thank you. All right, we're going to go through the mail in a moment. If you would like to be heard, not by calling but through the written word, you can email me Frank at wabcradio.com. dot com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. dot com. The mail
1: straight ahead. The other side of midnight. midnight. Inside at Midnight with Frank Marano.
2: singing the blues if you don't get your letter read on the latest edition of... All right. We'll start with the email we've gotten today. Uh, So far, we have not made a trip to the P.O. box this week. So if you've sent snail mail, I have not received it. Email it is. Lawrence writes, Frank, how much influence has your wife, Rachel, had in view of your virtually grammatically flawless English? Whoa! grammatically flawless English. There's a whole uh, cadre of listeners that would disagree with you. In using who, whom, between him and me, etc. Or Frank, is it you who have studied English grammar out of interest or necessity, Lawrence? Uh, Honestly, Lawrence, my grammar is not the best. I do mix up who and whom. I use the wrong then and then sometimes. My grammar is not the best. I mean, I put forth an effort, but um, no, I wish I uh, would... I wish my wife would influence me more, honestly. Jay writes, hi, Frank. As a frequent enough listener, I consider you a good guy. By the way, you know whenever an email begins that way that that left hook is coming. And here it comes. When you related that Sean Hannity had testified that he didn't believe certain claims regarding election fraud that he had mentioned on radio, you made a joke about him informing his audience of such things before his shows, etc., and implied that he's untrustworthy in a general, dishonest news personality way. With far more evidence than I have regarding you, I will tell you that anyone who actually gets to know him and is knowledgeable regarding his character would tell you that he is more honest and a finer person than most. No insult intended. Um, Without having even heard the exact details of the case, well, maybe you should look at them. I can guarantee that he did not say that he falsely stated something as if it was definite truth. Almost certainly, he reported the claims that were being made and probably discussed the issues and uncertainty regarding them. But regarding the level of certitude that would be relevant for legal matters, he made the statements that he did, etc. While you may not be a fan of his and painted your mistrust with a broad brush, you're actually someone who usually tries to be fair in your discussions And I hope in this case you'll think about this, maybe look into it, and we'll ultimately be fair to a fine man. Thanks for your time, Jay. I have no further comment. I don't want to start a radio war with uh, Sean Hannity because, you know, I used to work with Sean. And um, he has a Nixonian paranoia. So it's the last thing that I want to do. Uh, Obi Murray writes, I've never been sharp. Anything changes needs to be an amendment. Same with tax returns. Just tuned in, so I'm even slower than normal. Well, yeah, I mean, there's no reason that Nikki Haley's proposal, if that's what she wants to do, couldn't be an amendment, right? I mean, she's not saying not to make it an amendment. She's just saying that's what she wants. Linda writes on the subject of mental competency tests. Hi, Frank. I believe that if there were to be mental competency tests, there should be for all candidates. What is going on now is very unfortunate relative to age and cognitive ability, unfortunately. When there are people in the public eye who are undoubtedly and undeniably mentally incompetent who happen to be seniors, it truly makes it very difficult for most seniors who are not mentally competent or deficient. Instead of dealing with the true reasons for the person's obvious mental decline and calling things the way that they are, it's presumed by many that's because of the individual's age. That's extremely unfortunate and undeniably age discrimination. Well said, Linda. James writes... On the subject of Dilbert, salutations, Frank and Alex, although it's only sent to me. Scott Adams did not make racist statements. You and that mealy mouth, and I can't even say this word that he said in this email, you and that mealy mouth expletive, Alex Barnard, found what he said to be racist. In Alex's news statement, and if you're listening around the country, Alex does the news on WABC in New York. In Alex's news statement, he made the declarative statement that Scott Adams made racist remarks. That's according to Alex and you, not something to include in a news headline. It is your opinion, like me thinking Alex is uh, expletive. I cannot believe how quickly you all went full in on canceling him for his opinion. Love the show and will continue to listen. Just wanted to let you know that your take was silly. Alex must live in Brooklyn, so he is among he is almost beyond redemption. What a... I'm not going to repeat that word either. Ken continues to be a fan favorite. What happened to Frank Diaz, another member of the team memory hold? Um, well, first of all, I said the exact opposite of what you were claiming. I didn't say that Scott Adams should be canceled. I said specifically that he had should should not be canceled. Uh, as far as Alex's comments, you could take that up with him. Um... Alfred writes, on the subject of Ernie Anastas, Ernie asks the dumbest questions possible. Why do you guys at WABC kiss his ass? Alfred, I completely disagree with you. I not only found Ernie in our conversation, but in the commentaries that he has been doing, I find him delightful. I, I find him, in the two and a half minutes that he's heard each day, I find that he's improved our station immeasurably, and he put me in a much better mood in, uh, in, in talking. Jeff writes, Frank, I am listening to the podcast and had to comment, even though I'm still in the middle of it. Your interview with Ernie Anastas was not only a fantastic piece, but what a great promo for Ernie's radio and radio spot in his TV show. He has to be beyond elated at the outcome of the time he spent with you. This was really feel-good radio, of which we all really need more of. Bravo, and thanks for an upbeat interview. Jim writes of Patrick in the $1,000 Minute yesterday. Frank, $1,000 Minute contestant was hilarious. I played once and lost because I didn't know what day Dina Martin was on. I'm far from a genius, but I do know what day comes after Wednesday and what month it is now. Come on, people. Jim in New Hampshire. (laughs) Mike on the $1,000 Minute writes, Hello, Frank. Patrick should be banned from listening. Your patience is gold, Frank. Gold. That was cringeworthy. Thank you. Uh, someone else writes in the hourly news, Alex said that the comments made by Scott Adams were racist. Does Alex think or just read the news script? What he said about Scott Adams was wrong. It wasn't racist. Well, right right to right to Alex. Um, this is long. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Well, I guess David from the Bronx's call invalidates everything because you must be racist, too. Thank God I didn't make my point. Have a nice life, Nazi colonizer. OMG, David is tone deaf every bit as much as he is physically blind. That's not harsh if you think about it. And not to go off on a tangent, but last week I forgot what it was about my... But my mother says to me one night, Frank is such a nice guy, isn't he? This is about tone deafness in the black community. There are people that believe racism starts and ends with white people. And he goes on. But, you know... There were multiple views expressed on that question by the black community. I think it was Renee who called in afterwards. She was black. She disagreed with David. So just because I don't think you should uh, say that it's a tone deafness reflected in the black community. You could just say you don't agree. All right. Bruce writes, just wanted to give you a heads up that I called on Thursday and the screener never heard of San Pedro Belize. I could tell when he put me on hold. He sounded skeptical. He comes in and bluntly told me there were no time to take my call. I'm sure it's a tough job, but there was 40 minutes left. I actually put on YouTube. So maybe give the screeners a heads up that there is a Bruce from San Pedro, Belize. All right. Well, uh, Ken, there is indeed a Bruce from San Pedro, Belize. Uh, That's kind of personal. I will hold off on that. David writes... Curtis always uses the term Gumbada Cheech, Rudy Giuliani. Do you know what that means? That's not really a term. It's a combination of two terms. It's a combination of Gumbada and Cheech. Basically, it means, and especially the way Curtis uses it, it means friend, close friend, almost like a brother, but not a familial relation. All right, if you didn't get your letter heard, we'll do it next time. Until then, your influence counts. Be sure to use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Well, we are just a couple of weeks away from spring. A few weeks away. And you know what that means? That means we are in the midst of spring training. Spring training is so much fun. If you're a baseball fan, which I am, and now look, I don't have the same enthusiasm and the same level of baseball obsessiveness now that I did when I was 10 years old, 11 years old, 12 years old. You know, you go through different stages of your life. Different things interest you. uh, Different things take up your time. And, you know, look, you change, right? So uh, when I was 12, when I was 11, I mean, forget about it. I knew the entire 40-man roster of the Mets and the Yankees. Now I I think I'm lucky if I can name five players that don't wear pinstripes. So... In any event, there's still something so exciting about spring training. So we're in the midst of spring training. Spring training, if you're not a baseball fan, that's when the uh, ball players go down to Florida, Arizona, warmer climates, and start getting themselves into playing shape. And it's when people that uh, might make the team get invited to spring training and they start seeing, you know, who's got what it takes to play with the big dogs, right? And, uh, that's, and and sometimes that's where you'll include these novelty players that would never, ever make a major league roster, but they want to sell merchandise and they want to get people to the spring training games and they want to create a buzz and get publicity. The best example in recent years, at least with the Mets, is Tim Tebow. You know, Tim Tebow seems like a great guy, and I actually really like Tim Tebow for a whole host of reasons. I'd love to get him on the show one day. But uh, T- Tim Tebow... W- was never going to be a major league baseball player. And yet every year the Mets would invite him back to spring training. And it was because he was a celebrity. People wanted to see Tim Tebow and they wanted to buy Met jerseys that had Tim Tebow's name on them. So they could make a lot of money selling Tim Tebow merchandise, even though he was never going to make it. That's the kind of thing you could do with spring training. They can have these uh, split squad games. I don't really watch many of the spring training games, uh, I'll be honest. If I'm home and there happens to be one on, and I know there's one on, I'll, I'll put it on in the background. But I don't watch it. You know when I used to watch spring training games prior to 1998? Why? Because prior to 1998, there was no interleague play. You never got to see the Mets play the Yankees. You never got to see the Mets play the Red Sox, unless it was the World Series, which, as a Mets fan, you were not in the habit of getting to. So um, there was was something fun about seeing American League teams play National League teams. Now, for the last 25 years, we have had interleague play. So the novelty of that has worn off. And now especially, everybody is playing every team. So it's a different ballgame. But something very interesting happened on Saturday in the Atlanta Braves-Boston Red Sox game. You know what happened? You know how that game ended? You think the Braves won? No. think the Red Sox won? No. That game ended in a 6-6 tie. Now, that's not super unusual because in spring training, they don't go to extra innings. You can have the games end in a tie because the games don't count for anything, really. The game ended in a 6-6 tie after, and this is what's unusual, after Braves player Cal Conley struck out for not getting set in the batter's box in time. Not getting set in the batter's box in time. That is not something you usually hear associated with baseball. You hear it with basketball. They've got a shot clock. You hear with uh, football, they got a play clock. I, I, my interest in hockey is less than zero, so I'm sure hockey's got something. Um, but you better get used to hearing that. Because this season, baseball is entering a new era, the Sonic the Hedgehog era, where they have instituted all these new rules designed to speed up the game. There are all these concerns, and we've chronicled this before that all the fans of baseball are too old. We hear that with radio fans too, right? Don't we? Well, there are concerns that, the, that baseball is being disrupted and replaced and displaced by faster-paced sports. So what baseball is doing is disrupting itself by introducing new rules this year to speed up the game and generate more offense. These rules include a pitch clock. So pitchers and hitters can't loaf around in between pitches. These rules include the elimination of extreme defensive shifts to encourage more offense. These rules include bigger bases to boost the number of stolen bases. These rules include limiting the number of mound disengagements like pickoff throws. They're actually going to limit the number of times you could throw over to first base. So, it's going to take some getting used to for me, and I'm sure for you if you're a baseball fan. But the strange scenarios that we saw in the first spring training games showed how players and teams will need to adjust to these new rules. On Friday, San Diego Padres star Manny Machado became the first major league player to begin an at-bat down 0-1, meaning no balls and a strike, in the count for stepping into the batter's box too late. For fans like me, uh, who love baseball, but can't justify spending three-plus hours watching it, maybe these will end up being welcome changes. That same Padres-Mariners game that I just mentioned with Manny Machado, that game took just two hours and 29 minutes to complete, about 40 minutes shorter than last year's regular season average. So at least in spring training these little these new rules are working to speed up the game i hate these new rules i understand what baseball is trying to do i wonder if rob manford you know ever actually was a fan of baseball before b- becoming the commissioner of baseball he um he's been with major league baseball since 1987 He went to law school, he clerked for a federal judge, and then joined a law firm. And then I I don't think he ever played baseball. I want to know if he ever watched baseball before working in it. Because Rob Manford's whole modus operandi seems to be that baseball works best when there's less of it. And I understand what he's trying to do. But this whole idea, which started during COVID, of having a runner on second base during these extra inning games, it's idiotic. It's idiotic. If you really want to speed up the games, do away with the designated hitter. Instead, what baseball has done is the opposite of this. They've made both leagues take the designated hitter. So I don't like these new rules. Hopefully it works out. I want baseball to do well, and I want younger fans to take to baseball. I was... I was, even though, you know, playing ball in the house is frowned upon. We were playing, uh, Carmine got a, a little baseball bat that my brother-in-law Josh gave him. And we were playing baseball in the house yesterday. And I really hope he grows up as I did, wanting to uh, aspire to be a baseball player and to want to go to games and to play the games. And I, I see the generational problem that baseball is having. And if this helps it, then then great. I don't know how much it's going to help. Um, I don't like I don't like it, and I am joined in not liking it by Kevin Plawecki, who is the catcher for the Pirates. He spoke to the Associated Press about some of these new rules.
6: I feel like when you start um, doing automatic strikes, automatic balls, um, automatic runners advancing to bases, the oh, yeah. automatic run scoring possibly um, just based off of a step off or a pickoff. Um, to me, I think that just
1: changed the integrity of the game.
6: I
2: agree. I completely agree. I'd hate to be that new Japanese pitcher that the Mets have that he's going to have to learn. First of all, the rules were already a little different in America than Japan. Now we've got to learn all these other crazy new rules and, and not speak English in the process. I mean, maybe you feel differently. Call me and let me know. 800-848-9222. That's 800 848 Grayson Rodriguez is a pitcher for the Orioles. He likes some of these new rules.
11: You know, big league hitters take a long time to get to the plate, and that drives me crazy. So uh, this pitch clock kind of expediting the process, you know, I like it a lot.
2: What do the fans think? Michael McAfee, he is sort of in my corner. He's not crazy about these new rules.
5: The game isn't meant to be a one-hour game like football. There shouldn't be a timer. You shouldn't have a tie game in the bottom of the ninth.
2: But Bill Cottrell, another baseball fan, He's open to them.
5: You lose because the pitch clock ran out. Sounds pretty good to me. You know, again, trying to help the, the game be a little bit shorter, faster, and maybe more run production.
2: I get it, right? I understand. The, well, run production is, I, I don't care about that. I understand that most people, like me, are are busy, right? We're working, we're sleeping, we're driving to work, we're driving home from work, we're taking care of our children. Most people don't have three-plus hours to watch 162 baseball games plus the playoffs. We don't. So I I understand the need for this. That being said, this is so dopey. Having a player strike out because he's not in the batter's box fast enough, I don't like it. I don't like it, but maybe you do. Tell me what you think. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Now, Vito in Staten Island has been waiting a while. This is not Staten Island Borough President Vito Fasella, is it?
5: No, it's not. Frankly, I, I, okay. I, I wish I wish I wish I was, but you know, politics to me, it's you know, I, I'm very passionate with it, and uh, you know, I get a little crazy. But anyway, the reason why I called. Is uh, I think they should give a competency test to voters. Um, and case in point, John Fetterman. That's all I'm going to say. Because the guy should not have been nowhere near the position he's in now. In fact, the position he's in now, he's in a room uh, where there's people in white coats and nets holding him in, you know, keeping him hostage. Well, uh, then, the
2: nuts. Yeah, well, they're not keeping him hostage. He went in voluntarily. Right. Um, That's number one. Number two, I agree with you that I think the pizza people of Pennsylvania are a little wacky for picking John Fetterman, especially and not just the general electorate. I'm, I'm talking about the the Democrats, because you could almost understand why the general election, the general electorate, if they wanted a Democrat, would have supported Fetterman, because even though they know he might be diminished in some capacity. They didn't want a Republican U.S. Senate. And the only way in the general election to prevent that was to vote for John Fetterman. I get that as a rational strategy. But here's what I don't get. In the primary, they could have voted for Connor Lamb. Connor Lamb as a congressman um, and as somebody that was not only sharp but was a veteran – very intelligent, very moderate, very willing to work across the other side of the aisle, he would have been a model senator. And you know what? He would have won the general election going away. Wouldn't have even been close. And yet the Democratic primary voters picked John Fetterman. Uh, I don't understand that at all. And I think part of the reason is Pennsylvania has... Closed primary elections. And I think if uh, Pennsylvania Democrats were to allow independents to vote in that election, I think there's a good chance Conor Lamb might have won. Maybe not. Who knows? But certainly he would have been more competitive, had a better chance of winning. And on the Republican side, a big part of the reason that uh, Dr. Oz lost was because the Republicans ran such a poor candidate for governor, Doug Mastriano. And Mastriano ended up dragging down the whole Republican ticket, and I think if Independents could have voted in that Republican primary, they made if they might have picked a better candidate than Mastriano, and you might have seen Doctor Oz end up winning. 800-848-9222. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Jr. is in Brooklyn. Hello there, Jr.
5: Good morning, Frank. Good to hear you, Bill. Thank Listen, you. This is. This is, let me, let's get back to stuff that's actually important. The spring training, this is exactly what these rules and spring training this is where they meet. You test out your new ideas and you test out your new rules. Like, let's get rid of these gigantic bases. You lo- It looks so I, foolish. I
2: saw. It looks ridiculous.
5: There's no need. No one is getting hurt. You know what I mean? It's not an over-40 league, softball league, where you need an inside <laughs> and outside base. Um, You can keep that shot clock, though. You know, these guys take forever. Forever on the mound. They take forever at the plate. But there is a little bit of a strategy to the pitcher on the mound who wants to throw over the first, who wants to make a move to first. He's got to control those base
2: runners. But there's also a strategy on the part of the base runner. Sometimes you want to take a little bit of a a suicide lead to um, make sure the pitcher throws over to kind of break up his rhythm a a little bit. I think that's part of the game.
5: One more thing. As you know, most people know, baseball is a huge game of statistics. They can tell you who has the most doubles on a Tuesday for an eclipse. There's definitely a way that you can take the quickest time in baseball games, uh, let's say they were in the 80s, and the longest length of a baseball game, say, in uh, 2020, and you can find that, that balance where this is the perfect time for a game, two hours, 45 minutes, how can we make it happen? It's not by putting gigantic, foolish, novelty bases in there.
2: Uh, no, no, I, I completely agree. Thank you, JR. You know, it's funny, I um, I was talking to Ralph Nader Recently, and we were, you know, he's a baseball fan. He's a Yankee fan. And we were talking about these new rules changes and he's actually kind of in agreement in agreement with Jr. He's okay with the pitch clock, but doesn't want any of these other rules, especially the new larger bases. And, and you know what he brought up? And I think he brought this up the last time we were on the radio together. What he brought up is this is going to affect all the records, all the people that have great stolen base records, whether it's career records or season single-season records, people like Ricky Henderson, Maury Wills, Lou Brock, Ty Cobb, now that it's so much easier to steal bases, you're going to see every jabroni become a 30-30 or 40-40 player. And it, it makes the accomplishments of a lot of the other people that I just mentioned, it makes them somewhat diminished. But we've seen that when analyzing home runs as well. 800 Bob is in Baltimore. Hello, Bob.
6: Yeah, hi, Frank. You've heard, I'm sure, that people's attention spans are growing shorter and shorter.
2: I, I'm they, sorry. Uh, can you repeat that? I wasn't paying attention.
6: Yes. Yeah, you've heard, I'm sure, that people's attention spans are growing shorter and shorter uh, with uh, things like... Uh, social media and these things there's no depth. people don't read books like they used to. What I'm thinking from what you're saying, Frank, is that people's attention spans are growing so short that they can't sit and watch a good game of baseball. It has to be all quick and hard and fast and uh, and just moving like Indy five hundred they just there's so much to baseball there's there's strategy, and it's a game of inches it's not It's not like other sports.
2: I agree with you completely, Bob, one hundred percent, but. Uh, if Donald Rumsfeld were commissioner of baseball, what he would say is you go to you go to the ballpark with the fans that you have, not the ones that you wish you have. And uh, right now, baseball is facing not quite an existential crisis, but an existential threat in that their fans are older than any other sport and they're struggling to attract young eyeballs. And what that means is that um, they're struggling to attract advertisers that want to appeal to those younger eyeballs. So they think part of the strategy to, to get around that is more offense, which I disagree with, and shorter games. Now, I, I, don't, uh, I, I agree with you. I think it would be a great thing if people could develop longer attention spans, but baseball seems to be thrown in the towel and admitting that that's unlikely to occur.
6: What I think, Frank, is that uh, that they're good in that they want to bring people to the park and they want to keep the game going. I can't blame them right. one bit for that. But maybe people's attention spans is a good topic for your show at a later time.
2: Well, uh, thank you, Bob. I think that's a great idea. We have talked about that a little bit, but um, but that's always an interesting topic because you're right. Look, we. In fact, I think I just talked about it last week. But um, that that is a big problem. Attention spans, not just for children, but for adults, are shrinking. You know, uh, but I think so much of this comes down to who the baseball commissioner is. And I realize that it's not just him. There are a lot of other people that, um, you know, that are involved in the leadership structure of uh, of Major League Baseball. That being said... I would love to see someone who has a little bit more baseball experience, someone that knows what it's like to, I don't know, own a team uh, or I mean, I know we've had owners before like Bud Selig, and that didn't necessarily work too well. Someone that knows what it's like to manage a team, someone that knows what it's like to work in the front office of a team. Um I, You know, I'm not sure who I, I think, you know, probably Joe Tory is at a point in his life that he doesn't want to do this. But someone like a Joe Tory that's shown an ability to be an administrator that knows what it's like to put on a pair of cleats and break up a double play. the someone that knows what it's like to um, order a hit and run, uh, but recognizes the need for fans. You know you know who would be a, a very good baseball commissioner, and I'm not joking. you're gonna think that I am Rudy Giuliani Rudy Giuliani would be and i I know that he's not doesn't necessarily have the baseball professional bona fides that um that I'm talking about, but he knows baseball as well as anyone, and his skills as an administrator, i think speak for themselves. I think he would do now. Obviously, he would. They would never pick him because he's become such a polarizing figure these days. But someone like that would be good. You need someone that not only has a knowledge of baseball and an insight of what it's like to play the game, or to manage the game, or to be an agent in the game, but someone that um, you know, someone that can be an administrator as well. I'm sure there are maybe Dusty Baker. Somebody like Dusty Baker might be a good. Uh, A good person, but I don't think Rob Manford, I think Rob Manford is as suited to run Major League Baseball as uh, Laura Kavanaugh is to run the New York City Fire Department. Pat is in New Jersey. Hello, Pat. Hi, Frank. I agree with you totally, especially
9: the runner at second base, et cetera. Mm. However, there's one thing I think they should be looking into, and they're not is the umpire when he's calling balls and strikes, and the the ball is way outside and he calls it a strike, and then with judge, it's way below his knee, and they call that a strike. That's what they should be looking into, not this other garbage.
2: Well, I, I think that's all. So what would you what would you do? Would you prefer a robotic uh, strike zone? I don't know how
9: they could do it, but something's got to be done because it's not right, especially when you get to the playoffs and when it really counts. Right.
2: Well, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying, Pat. Thank you. I, I like the human element of the game. I like fans arguing whether or not that was a checked swing or not. I like, uh, you know, fans ready to, you know, ready to go to war with one another, figuratively, over whether something was a ball or a strike. I uh, I do. 800-848-9222. We're going to take one more call, and then I'm very excited to talk with Brian Deer. Brian Deer is an author and a journalist who has done a heroic job debunking junk science. And helping a lot of people in the process. We'll get into it in a, in a minute. Uh, Rigby is in Mineola. Hello, Rigby.
0: Frank, I don't know if you mentioned the change in the shift. That's yes, the yes, I,
2: I did. Uh, you can uh, reiterate it if you okay. want. Go ahead.
0: Okay, so, so, I mean, that's incentivizing one-dimensional hit- hitters and disincentivizing uh, talented guys who can use the whole field. You know, I think that's a really regrettable rule that comes from uh, ultimately comes from big data where people can can get these statistics and look at spray charts and, and put their fielders, you know, where they should defensively.
2: Rigby, but I, I do don't hurt I, I don't like the shift, but I don't like the rule either. Uh, I think, you know, it's crazy for the, the shortstop to have to be looking down and see where his foot is. If he's if he's touching the grass or if he's touching dirt, I think it's silly. I think it's an overregulation. Of of the game, I'll give you the last word, Rigby. Thank you. Uh, All right, we're going to talk with Brian Deer in just a moment. It is the 25 year anniversary of the scare linking vaccinations for measles with autism. Brian Deer has written the book on this. Quite literally, this is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead,
1: the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano.
8: You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off you. You'd be like heaven to touch. I want to hold you so much. At long last, love has arrived. And I thank God I'm alive. You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off you.
2: The great Frankie Valley singing, I can't take my eyes off of you. Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, to be precise. Um, this was a birthday bumper music selection for my uh, cousin Palma. It is my cousin Palma's birthday today, or actually it was technically yesterday, but a happy birthday to Palma. Well, um, 25 years ago, uh, some, some very scary research emerged. And basically, it was suggested that autism was linked to the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. And on February 26th, 1998, the now discredited Andrew Wakefield announced he had found a connection between autism and the vaccine. This sparked huge media attention. I mean, uh, Imus couldn't have his wife Deirdre on enough to talk about all the problems with the vaccine, the thimerosal and this and that. This sparked worldwide reductions in the vaccination uptake because who wanted their child to get uh, autism? Certainly wouldn't want my son to get it. But. Turns out. The study wasn't exactly what it seems However, that does, not, um, that does not stop some people from continuing to raise questions, and sometimes more, about whether or not certain vaccinations cause autism. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was on Good Day New York in 2014, talking about his book at the time and the connection between certain vaccines and autism. Mercurochrome, which we used to have as a kid, it was that kind of orange ointment that would stain
6: your clothes, or murine eye drops, and it had thimerosal in it, and they found out that it was injuring and even killing people. So FDA ordered it removed from uh, over-the-counter medications after doing a lot of studies that showed, demonstrated its toxicity. CDC at the same time was recommending higher and higher doses of vaccines, and there was thimerosal in those vaccines. And we started to see a giant rise in neurological disorders among our children.
2: It turns out the doctor who wrote this study 25 years ago had been paid to find a connection, and he faked his data. And uh, the Lancet retracted the study and Wakefield's medical license was revoked. And the man who uncovered that fraud, the man who made it all possible, is author and uh, journalist Brian Deere, who's kind enough to join us right now. Brian, thanks so much for joining me on the radio.
16: Oh, good morning, Frank. Uh, good morning to a uh, great day here in London.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a much more civilized time there over there than uh, than it is here I bet.
16: I think the middle of the night is a very civilized
2: time. <laughs> so do I, so do I. So you wrote the book uh The Doctor Who Fooled the World uh, all about Andrew Wakefield's war on vaccines. Let's talk about your interest in this uh, in this story. And in this case, what prompted you to begin investigating the claims in this Andrew Wakefield piece when it was issued 25 years ago?
16: Well, I I worked Sunday Times and I um, had done a previous investigation into a different vaccine. Um, And when I saw this paper appear 25 years ago, um, I saw that the claims being made in this, this paper appeared to have been copied in some respect from a previous paper about a different vaccine and I thought well why, why on earth would that be vaccines are all different and their technologies are different and how they work are different and, uh, and so I, I thought well that's interesting I paid attention to it and I didn't do anything about it I never wrote anything about it because I only, I only do long investigations and then eventually I was just uh, invited to lunch and somebody, we went through different topics to as possible investigations and this this scare that uh, had been launched came up um and uh, so i i just had a routine assignment and um that was in 2003 so much of the rest of my life has been dominated by all this so what
2: did you what did you find exactly
16: well, what they'd done is that they'd copied over, because the the paper that was published 25 years ago was actually commissioned through a firm of lawyers. Nobody knew this. And um, at the time, the lawyers were working off this previous scare over a different vaccine. And in that, uh, what they were claiming was that autism had come on within days of vaccination, which was what you'd have to say if you wanted to get funding to uh, join this lawsuit. And um, and so I started to investigate it, and I've ended up doing what no other journalist has ever done, which is to find the patients behind the research. The the the, the, the paper itself was just a simple case report on twelve children who all appeared to have autism, and all and nearly all appeared to have um, had this um, autism come on, as I say, within days of vaccination, and that just wasn't true. Uh, the kids had been brought there by the lawyer and by uh, uh, anti-vaccine campaigning groups. The author, this man Wakefield, had changed the data. Some children had been vaccinated um, after the development of their first signs of their autism. Some didn't uh, have any uh, issues for months afterwards. Uh, He altered the times of um, uh, when all various tests were done. And the whole thing was a concoction and it was a concoction intended to raise money to get a class action lawsuit up and running. Um, And um, subsequently, all kinds of uh, big research projects were mounted all around the world and nobody could confirm any kind of link between the vaccine and autism, leaving this paper looking really rather exposed as to how he could possibly have got the figures that he got.
2: So the researchers, it, it's pretty clear, were faking their data and they were cheating and, and lying. And you went to the source. You m- tried to meet with the patients and their families and and examined kind of the the story behind the numbers that they were claiming.
16: Yes, I was able to actually perfectly lawfully to actually break through the uh, awesome veil of patient confidentiality and find out exactly what these children's uh, histories and diagnoses and what have you were. Very, very difficult to do and only partly accomplished because um, uh, he had made the mistake of suing me. Mm. Um, When we when we first said that he was being paid by lawyers, Uh, And that he'd also uh, developed his own products he was trying to sell. He made the mistake of suing and then tried to stop the lawsuit. But we went to court and the judge ordered him to continue with his lawsuit. And in the course of that, uh, enormous amounts of information were disclosed to me. And I was then able to go ahead and research the um, research, the thing.
2: Do you have any idea how much uh, he was paid by these lawyers?
16: Uh, In the end, it was about uh, three-quarters of a million U.S. dollars at uh, current uh, conversion rates. So it was a very large sum of money, eight times his annual salary as a a medical researcher.
2: Now, as I mentioned, uh, Andrew Wakefield's medical license was revoked. Did anything happen in terms of any sort of punishment or sanction to the attorneys that were paying Wakefield to fake this research? No, you see,
16: they got away with it. This is the thing. like They, they vanished below the horizon um, and uh, nothing was done. I think largely because the people who were paying them didn't really want to um, didn't really want the thing to be opened up. And uh, I couldn't penetrate uh, legal uh, privilege. Not, I could get past patient confidentiality, but legal privilege would have been a whole other life. Time to uh, get through
2: that. What about the uh, the people that have persisted? Uh, forgetting about the data that Wakefield put out in this discredited mm. study, the people that have persisted since your work uh, twenty years ago to insist that there's a link between these vaccinations and autism. I played the clip of Robert Kennedy Jr. saying that it's the thimerosal in the vaccines that might uh, lead to an onset of autism. Is there any data at all to suggest that might be the case?
16: Uh, no, this is this is the the, the bizarre aspect to it, is that that issue as well. Uh, I heard that clip of uh, Kennedy talking about this, and he really misrepresented the situation. It was a very similar kind of scenario that the fear of uh, thimerosal, um, which was launched uh, following the previous uh, scare over the fear of uh, the MMR vaccine, was itself again launched by lawyers. What had happened was was the federal government and the um, uh, American Academy of Pediatrics uh, agreed that as a precautionary measure, thimerosal would be taken out of vaccines because it wasn't needed anymore. It was, a, it was a, um, uh, a, a, an agent for preventing vaccines from becoming contaminated with bacteria and stuff. And it, it, it wasn't needed anymore. So the American Academy of pa- Pediatrics and the government said, well, let's take it out. And as soon as they did that, as soon as they took the action to make vaccines safer, they got hit with a lawsuit. And, of course, Kennedy is a lawyer, and uh, that's, that's again, the same thing. And that fell apart as well. No evidence has been established uh, uh, establishing that um, there's any link between um, thimerosal and autism either. The whole thing was an illusion constructed by lawyers and, and uh, executed by, um, by their... Um, uh, experts that they find, they're, they're paid, um, they're paid uh, medical advisors.
2: I was talking with Brian Deer. If you're interested in learning more about his work on this case, you could check out the book, The Doctor Who Fooled the World, Andrew Wakefield's War on Vaccines. And you could check out Brian's website at briandeer.com. That's D-E-E-R.com. I, I've had Robert Kennedy Jr. on this show, and one of the things that he offered when he was on the program is he offered to debate any medical professional on, the, uh, on vaccinations and vaccine-related issues. Now, obviously, you're a journalist, not a doctor, but if he was up for debating you, would you ever consider debating him on the radio with me?
16: Oh sure, sure, absolutely. I, I doubt very much whether he would, because uh, he he is vulnerable. Um, he's uh, he's he, he's kind of waded into something that he doesn't understand, but uh, believes that he does. Um, no, I'd have no trouble with Robert Kennedy. <laughs>
2: uh, so, do you have any idea? What sort of decline in measles vaccination levels there's been over the last 25 years uh, since this Wakefield study?
16: well the the, 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 the the strange thing is this the the year on year percentages have been falling like by individual percentage points and and so people say, well, that's not a lot, but in fact, what happens is over the years what, you get this constant accumulation of unvaccinated children unvaccinated people, and they when you start to add them together, it creates a pool within which the uh, the viruses can return and that actually happened in a very serious way back in 2000. 2000- when there was a measles outbreak in Samoa. It was kind of a natural experiment of like Wakefield's uh, ideas. Um, They, they, for for all kinds of complicated reasons, they stopped vaccinating um, some children, um, a particular age group of children. And as the months passed, that age group of children started to get measles and eventually more than 80 Mm. children died in a matter of a few months.
2: What is Andrew Wakefield doing now?
16: Uh, Well, he's making videos, which he calls movies, mostly videos in which he stars and which uh, purport to vindicate him. And um, he's basically become an anti-vaccine campaigner and works a a, a network. Um, What many people won't realize is that across America and around the world, there are like networks now of uh, anti-vaccine campaigners. And he's uh, very much plugged into that because that's his only source of income after having um, lost his license to practice medicine.
2: I'm going to ask you about the COVID-19 vaccine and uh, what your take is on the objections to that in a moment. But I'm sure you're aware that uh, the talk radio audience in the United States, and I imagine this might be an international truth, but it's certainly true in the United States, is incredibly cynical. And the the two of the groups that they are very cynical towards are one, the government, and two, Big Pharma, the pharmaceutical industry. And the more profitable a drug company is, the more cynical the audience is about it. So if the government is issuing mandates that you have to take something that's manufactured by the pharmaceutical industry, that immediately raises the ire of a lot of people in this audience who think that the government is in bed with Big Pharma and that uh, they're going to shove any sort of product that's going to make big pharma richer down our our throats and it seems like some of the vaccine skepticism on both the the measles vaccine and subsequent vaccines is driven by that skepticism is there anything that you can think to say to someone that's distrustful of the pharmaceutical industry and big government that would put them at ease somewhat about the safety of the vaccines that Big Pharma is producing?
16: Well, I said to uh, my editors right at the start of this whole uh, pandemic was that what was needed was to for the public to be able to retain trust in the... Spokespeople who are putting forward uh, advice to them, um, and I think really that people have a right to be suspicious of big pharma and government. I think that's quite a healthy thing, particularly in the United States. It's not true in the UK. In the UK, big pharma is not able to advertise medical products in media. Uh, They're they trying to find ways around this. But you, you, it, it, it's not lawful to to put up drug industry product advertising. Whereas in the United States, because television in particular uh, reaches a, a highly generalized audience, highly generalized products, i.e., pharmaceuticals, things that people, everybody takes, are really become, have become the staple uh, stream of advertising revenue that supports a huge amount of uh, oh, yeah. media. And so that's, that's, I think it's understandable that people would be cynical, but I think the the, 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 the real authorities, um are not influenced. By that kind of money, and 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 the the, the classic is um, is Anthony Fauci, who I'm sure is a, that's a name everybody's heard of, and I I interviewed him years ago, and he's not a man who's obsessed with money. If he was obsessed with money, um, he wouldn't be working for the for the federal government because you don't earn a lot of money working for the government. Well, um, although, and although
2: there are I, I, again the Fauci discussion is a whole separate thing, but uh, the NAAH yeah. scientists are in a position and correct. Correct me if I if I misunderstand this. They are in a position to make um, royalties from some of the products that they've created, aren't they? Oh, yeah, they
16: um, yeah inventors of, inventors of things usually get a, a, a cut, but it's never a big cut. If you find uh, public uh, doctors working in the in the public sector, they're not making a lot of money compared to what they would be earning if they were they were in uh, private practice. So they, 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 it, 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 it's it, it's the suspicion of big business the suspicion of government i think is, uh, is i think is legitimate and, and in many ways healthy but what we 've seen uh, really has been a tremendous response to the uh, pandemic, and as far as we know, as far as the data shows. Um, the uh, the response has been broadly, uh, rather expensively, uh, correct. But here's the caveat for me. The whole point of uh, my investigation into, into Andrew Wakefield and the fraud back in uh, 25 years ago today was really to try and raise more scepticism about the integrity of biomedical research. So all these research papers that come out mm-hmm. every week um, telling you this and that and that COVID vaccines are good or whatever, whatever. Whatever, um, need to be scrutinized because th- that kind of medical publishing, those kind of medical sources are themselves often uh, very suspect for, for what they're publishing.
2: And um, as far as the COVID vaccine, have you r- looked at any of the suggestions that uh, the COVID vaccine is leading to things like uh, myocarditis or Bell's palsy or any of the uh, the so-called sudden deaths that uh, that people are are attributing in some quarters to the vaccine? Have you looked at the the COVID vaccine concerns at all?
16: Well, what I what I try to do is not to be not to set myself up as a medical authority. I mean, I'm a journalist and I I find out who did what and, and I Good at investigating uh, misconduct of various kinds. So I don't put myself up as a medical expert, but what I do know is that that, that there's a there, there's a tremendous amount of complexity within all these issues that uh, the, that the public is find finds it hard to get through, um, at hard to understand. And um, you know, I've had my four uh, COVID uh, shots and um, don't feel any worse for it. Um, and I think that the. the We have to place our trust somewhere.
2: Right. Well, fair enough. Hey, uh, tell me about your uh, your your newest book, uh, which looks pretty interesting. Blind trial. What's this about?
16: Oh, that's my novel. I mean, I think every journalist likes to write a novel, um, and it's uh, that's a novel about um, about uh, two people who meet up at a uh, biotechnology conference, and um, and a doctor complains to a lawyer about um, about patients uh, going missing in a medical trial. So it's uh, it's uh, if anyone's got a Kindle out there and want to read a. Uh, Pharmaceutical orientated thriller, then um, Blind Child's
2: one for them. Before we we end, Andrew Wakefield, I know that he was publicly discredited and he lost his medical license. Did he face any sort of legal uh, issues, any legal punishment for faking the data in this initial study 25 years ago?
16: No, what he did was he he fled to America, and um, the the way we hoped to get him was through one of his uh, uh, lawsuits. He kept bringing lawsuits against us uh, for this, that, and the other. And we were hoping to get him for perjury, but um, no. The, the the thing is, the, the bizarre thing is that uh, medical researchers don't have any duty of care to the general public. So you. you wow. there's, there's, it's very difficult to raise uh, to find the grounds to uh, to bring a lawsuit against him. I think personally, and a lot of medical journal editors think this, but but never never declare it until after they've uh, retired. I think. Um, Publishing uh, – intentionally publishing false information in scientific journals ought to be a criminal offence of itself, an, an individual criminal offence, not 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 an attempt to sort of bring civil action, but people sh- – it should be an arrestable offence. People should go to jail for it, I think.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean uh, it's difficult to – over, it's difficult to overstate the damage that Andrew Wakefield did to families all over the world, and to think that uh, there was no sort of legal penalty for that—it's—it's it's staggering. Brian Deer, uh, people could check out your website at briandeer com. Thanks for the time this morning.
16: Nice talking to meet
2: you, Frank. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800 848 9222. That's 1 800 848 9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
2: of Leon, beautiful war. This is the other side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on uh, anything that we are talking about, it's funny. Um, we we have hardwood floors in our house. And uh, I we after Carmine went to bed on Saturday and my wife and I were watching Tar I put a fire on in the fireplace. And I don't know what the situation is. Maybe the rack in the fireplace was a little too close to the front of the fireplace. But um, there was a time, you know, as wood burns, if you have a fireplace, the wood shifts around. You know, as it burns and goes down, it collapses and it goes in different places. So at one point, briefly, and, you know, we're watching it the whole time. We're not leaving the fire unattended or anything. But at one point, briefly, a couple of embers from the fire end up on the hardwood floor. Now, obviously, I scooped them up as quickly as possible, threw them back in the fire. But one ember left a burn mark on the hardwood floor right by the fireplace. And it looks pretty bad. I mean, it's small, but it's very noticeable. And it's driving my wife crazy. And so yesterday, or uh, Sunday, my son Carmine, as he's walking around, he walks right to that burn mark on the hardwood floor. Drives my wife even crazier because it looks kind of like it could be a bug. It looks like it could be paint. It looks like it could be anything. (laughs) Yesterday, our cat Melchizedek walks right over to that burn mark on the on the hardwood floor, I'm wondering it's very tiny, but it's very noticeable. I'm wondering if there's sort of a a cover that I can get that will that will camouflage this ember mark on the hardwood floor. You remember when Rudolph's parents covered up his nose because they were embarrassed of the the red nose that he had, and they put they covered him with a black nose His father Donner. They, they did something like that. Is there anything like that? Like, can I fake it? Because I don't want to have to sand the whole hardwood floor and do something like that because I'm afraid I'll make more of a mess. So if you know of something, email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. You're welcome to call as well, 800-848-9222. We will take some calls in a moment. Speaking of pets, in the words of the great Bob Barker... Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
2: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Can you believe we're on the last hour of the show already? I feel like the show just started. It's one of those days. I wish we had a fifth hour. Uh, all right. 800-848-9222. Those of you that are holding, I am going to get to you. There is a story that I have had on my list all week. And then the only cable news show that I make sure never to miss did it on Saturday. Michael Smirconish's show on CNN airs at 9 o'clock Eastern. They did it. And then I thought, oh, okay, if I do it after him, it's going to look like I'm just copying from Michael Smirconish. But then I thought to myself, well, one, are you really going to let that stop you from talking about an important subject? Because that's pretty dumb because you're afraid people might think you're copying. And two, um, I – they didn't take calls. They didn't have the opportunity to take calls. I'm sure he did it on the radio, but I didn't hear hear it on the radio. So I want to mention this because this is pretty important. Most, here's the top line takeaway. Most young men are single. Most young women are not. Listen to this. More than 60% of young men are single. That is nearly twice the rate of unattached young women, signaling a very a, a much larger breakdown in the social, romantic, and sexual life of the American male. Men in their 20s are more likely than women in their 20s to be romantically uninvolved, sexually dormant, friendless, and lonely. They stand at the vanguard of an epidemic of declining marriage, sexuality, and relationships that afflicts all of young America. Neobi Way, a psychology professor and founder of the project for the advancement of our community humanity at NYU, said, we are in a crisis of connection, disconnection from ourselves and disconnection from each other, and it's getting worse. In the worst case scenario, the young American man's social disconnect, can have tragic consequences. Young men commit suicide at four times the rate of young women. Young women, Younger men are largely responsible for rising rates of mass shootings, a trend some researchers link to their growing social isolation. Societal changes that began 70 years ago have eroded the patriarchy that once ruled the American home. The American workplace women now collect nearly 60 percent of bachelor degrees men still earn more but among the youngest adults that income gap has narrowed to just forty three dollars a week scholars say the new era of gender parity has reshaped relationship dynamics empowering young women and in many cases removing young men From the equation. Greg Matos, a couple and family psychologist in Los Angeles, uh, wrote an article titled, What's Behind the Rise of Lonely Single Men? I'm going to ask you that question in a minute, so be prepared to answer it. Greg Matos writes, women don't need to be in long-term relationships. They don't need to be married. They'd rather go to brunch with friends than have a horrible date. Recent years have seen a historic rise in unpartnered Americans, particularly among the young pandemic made things worse. As of 2022 Pew Research Center found 30% of U S adults are neither married living with a partner nor engaged in a committed relationship. Nearly half of all young adults are single, 34% of women and a whopping, listen to this, 34% of women are single and a whopping 63% of men. 63% of men are single, only 34% of women. Not surprisingly, the decline in relationships marches right along with a decline in sex the share of sexually active Americans stands at a 30 year low around 30% of young men reported in 2019. They had no sex in the past year compared to about 20% of young women. Only half of single men are even actively seeking relationships or even casual dates And that figure is declining. Fred Rabinowitz, a psychologist and a professor at the University of Redlands who studies masculinity, said this to The Hill. You have to think that the pandemic had an impact on some of those numbers. Young men are watching a lot of social media. They're watching a lot of porn. And I think they're getting, I want to be clear, I'm quoting Fred Rabinowitz. And I think they're getting a lot of their needs met without having to go out. And I think that's starting to be a habit. Even seasoned researchers struggle to fully account for the relationship gap between young men and young women. If single young men outnumber single young women nearly two to one, then you might ask the question, who are all the young women dating? Some of them are dating each other. One-fifth of Generation Z identifies as queer. And research suggests that bisexual women make up a large share of the young adult queer community. Young women are also dating and marrying slightly older men. Carrying on a tradition that stretches back more than a half century. More than a century, quite frankly. The average age at first marriage is around 30 for men, 28 for women. Heterosexual women are getting more choosy. Women don't want to marry down. They don't want to form a long-term relationship to a man with less education and less earnings than herself. So they are being very selective. In previous generations, young women entered adulthood in a society that expected them to find a financially stable man who would support them through decades of marriage and motherhood. Over the 50s, over the 60s, that pattern gradually broke down, and today it's gone. Women are tiring of the stereotype role of uh, a full-time therapist for an emotionally distant man. They want a partner who's emotionally open and empathetic. The opposite of that old masculine ideal. According to um, Ronald Levant, who's a professor emeritus of uh, psychology at the University of Akron and the author of several books on masculinity, today in America women expect more from men. And unfortunately so many men don't have more to give. Richard Reeves A senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, whose new book of Boys and Men has attracted a lot of praise, told The Hill, men are less naturally relational than women. Reeves points to a recent Saturday Night Live sketch that reimagined the neighborhood dog park as a man park, poking fun at this reliance of men on women to do the emotional lifting for them. I'll tell you, this is... Very alarming. Aaron Caro and Matt Ritter, both in their early 40s, study the male friendship recession in their Man of the Year podcast. It arose out of an annual tradition of gathering at a steakhouse with several male friends, all close since elementary school. And what Aaron Caro said to the hill was this. Guys are taught to prioritize career, also romantic relationships, although it doesn't seem like they're doing a very good job at that. Making friends and keeping friends seems to be a lower priority, and once guys get older, they suddenly realize they have no friends. So these podcasters and their friends created the annual gathering as a way to keep their friendship alive, and it spawned a year-round group chat and a man-of-the-year trophy. They treat friendship, uh, what Ritter said, and I've interviewed Ritter, he's a bright guy, we treat friendship as a luxury, especially men, when in actuality, it's a necessity. I have to tell you, I find this absolutely frightening, absolutely frightening. If you want to comment, you can 800 <laughs> 848 Scott Galloway, who's a NYU professor, he was on Smirconish's CNN show on Saturday, and he predicted a lot of this in previous interviews. This is, uh, this is what Scott Galloway had to say on CNN This Saturday. is
15: returning to the natural order of things. For the majority of history, a small percentage of men have had the majority of the mating opportunities. But in America, we decided to make a huge investment in what would probably be the greatest innovation in history, and that is in the middle class. From 1945 to 1947, 7 million men returned from war were discharged from the service, and we decided to give them the GI Bill, uh, subsidized mortgages. Uh, we saw education rates go from 5 to 45%. They were valued. And we had such a strong uh, manufacturing base that you had massive uh, marriage and household formation. And some men were seen as more economically and emotionally viable. And you've seen the reverse happen with the out- offshoring of much of our manufacturing base, with a society that quite frankly doesn't value young men. When we talk about problems with people of color or women, we see it as a systemic societal problem. When we see problems or the stats that you just mentioned, we see it as accountability or that men just need to level up. But married households and household formation are better citizens. They vote. They save at twice the rate. They're less likely to commit crimes. And we have fewer and fewer uh, viable men. We have a dearth of economically and emotionally Uh, viable men. But the middle class is an accident. Unless you invest in it, it doesn't happen. Eisenhower decided to invest $500 billion in a national highway uh, project that created tons of jobs. We have, uh, and by the way, the tax rate back then was 91%. We raised money and we redistributed in social programs that made young people more economically viable.
2: So uh, he had a lot of other interesting things to say. If you get a chance to watch the full interview, I would suggest that you watch it. But um, Why do you think this is the case? Why are there so many single men and so few women? I'll ask you a three-part question, right? That's what, number one, is why. Number two is what. What do you think we should do about this? How do you fix this problem? If you agree with me that it is a problem, and I think it is. Um, Obviously, I'm asking you if you agree with me, so obviously that's my opinion. And then lastly, the the third leg of this is what do you think the consequences are of this if this doesn't get fixed? Because my take is that this is going to lead to more young men killing themselves, more young men drowning themselves in drugs and booze more young men dealing with depression and anxiety, and more young men confining themselves to a, so, an, an existence of solitude. More young men committing crimes, more young men joining gangs, more young men committing gun violence, more young men committing mass shootings. And I think this is a horrible thing for society. So that is the three-part question I'm asking you is, why do you think this is occurring? How do we fix this? And what happens if we don't? A
1: question. Since before your son burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have
2: awaited a question. 800-848-9222. I'll tell you what I think is a key factor in this. And that, that's the fact that society in general has become so insular. One of the things Galloway mentioned in that uh, in that piece was that um, he is that we don't meet people anymore. You know, people, for the most part, I realize there are exceptions to this. People don't meet in bars. People don't meet. In church. And now, increasingly, with more and more people working from home, people aren't even meeting at, at work. And uh, essentially, we've criminalized w- workplace flirtation. So even if you do meet uh, someone of the opposite gender at work, you're not going to begin to start a relationship with them because you're fearful of an HR complaint or a lawsuit. And um, I think it's not, I think we have seen a huge uptick in people meeting one another and courting one another online. So what does that mean? So uh, if um, I, I've never I've never met someone online that I uh, dated, but that's now the norm. Uh, just a couple of years ago, I think it was one out of every four people that got married met online. Now I think it's one out of every two, and I'm sure the pandemic made that worse. But um, that makes... Women who are only meeting their perspective made online, it almost makes it so that and and I think this is borne out in the statistics, how often women are rejecting potential male suitors online as compared to women as compared to men rejecting potential female suitors. The when you're meeting someone online and a woman is looking at a man, what are they looking for? They're looking at their looks so if you're someone like me, whose strength is more personality and charm, you would not do well in an online environment, at least not as well as, say, a uh, a Kenneth. You know, number two, they're looking for education and probably professional accomplishment, including salary. And unless you're in that top 30% echelon of looks and professional success you're you're out of luck so this is really frightening what do we do about it Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. that's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. eric is in manhattan hello eric hello again frank um i i'm not white but it's it's the same principle
9: see uh when i was younger we just called it a dry spell. You know, it wasn't doom and gloom. There, there, there's a lot of pressure put on on these young uh, men and women. They, there, there's an attack on this genders, and so people are afraid to. People are afraid to have kids, and uh, they're told the world's going to end. So they don't want to have kids, and um, uh, and that study that's the same study for years. They they just leave out the the non-white shooters. Um, It's really bad. All right, all right but, um,
2: but, you know, this is, applying, sorry, <laughs> this is applying this disparity in men, ver, single men versus single women. This is applying across the ethnic groups. This is not a, a white thing. So why do you think, Eric, there's such a disparity between young men being single versus young women?
9: Well, it's still, you know, when young men are still chasers and women kind of, I mean, I don't say it's easy for anybody. Uh, that would be not fair. That wouldn't be fair to women. But it's like. They, <laughs> the younger women, maybe they, you know, their standards are unrealistically high. Remember the guy last night that talked to you about, told you about the the, the money issue, and it's about uh, I don't want to say women are after a, a guy's money, it, you know, it's just uh, it's unrealistic, and they don't, you know, a lot of people don't admit they do meet a lot of people online, you know, so uh, it, it's just uh, people are they have a rough today, they have a rough days, young younger. Generation, I I gotta give them that. I mean, and the COVID, and it's just uh, you know they have should have hope. Well, yeah, exactly,
2: Eric. They do have it rough, and that's what I'm trying to figure out a solution to. Why is there such a disparity? How do we get more young men to forget about having relationships? At least have friendships, because we're seeing this alarming new trend of the angry, lonely young man. And this leads to a dangerous situation. 800 9222 Joe is in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Hey, boss. How you doing? Good. Uh, I believe that, you know, we've kind of, my uh, mother-in-law
12: used to say, why buy the cow when the milk is free? Mm. And, you know, that's kind of the society we live in. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, if you wanted sex, you had to get married. And you know that's kind of, it was kind of a progression. You went out with somebody, you met somebody, if you liked that person, you carried on. Then beyond that, you created marriage and a family, you had sex. It was a wonderful time. Today sex is just it's not even a thought process. Uh pretty much anybody can go out, any place, any time, find somebody, basically do your business and go on. There's no commitment. And I think that it well, track. Detracts- but,
2: but then how do you explain the statistics that the rate of men and people in general having sex in this country is at a 30-year low? Oh uh, Well, I think also
12: we've found different ways for individuals to satisfy their uh, inhibitions. I mean, you can uh, we can go from this phone call to online, and I can spend from here till Friday on every type of pornographic site. Well, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, that, and that's one of the things that's mentioned in this, in this Hill article,
12: yeah. You know, and the thing is, you know, going back, I mean, when we look at religion, religion has a huge stake in the way this country was formed, uh, how we developed our character, uh, our, our morality, this has pretty much been... Uh, they're closing churches they're making restaurants out of them
2: well and uh and thank you, Joe. look, I do think the church's closing is a factor in this, but I don't think it's about religiosity and morals. I think it's a factor of you used to meet people at church, you know one of the things that I really uh, that really attracted to me uh to the um episcopal church is. They have like a coffee clutch after after church. There's a this fellowship, and you get to meet all the other people in church. If people aren't going to church, they're not meeting people. Now, it's no big deal if you're also in a bowling league. Well, people aren't in bowling leagues anymore. You could read the Robert Putnam book, Bowling Alone, uh, to see about that. Well, that's no big deal. People would meet folks at the Rotary Club. Oh, well, people are not participating in Rotary Clubs anymore. People are not interacting with other human beings except through a screen. And what are the results? The number of sexually active Americans is at a 30-year low. Now, obviously, there's some good news there because you see maybe a little bit of a decline in STDs. You see a decline in things like teen pregnancy. But at what cost? We have a generation of young men that is ready to erupt, and we are witnessing firsthand they are in the process of erupting. So what do we do about it? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello. Yes, good morning, friend. Good morning.
10: Okay, good morning. Let's, let's qualify something first. Do we know these men want to get married? Or is it just 60 percent of men don't want to be married?
2: Well, I mean, I'm sure they probably they have varying views. But as as I as I as I said, we're seeing only half of single men are seeking are actively seeking relationships or even casual dates, according to. Well,
10: well, Well, I can see why. I mean, look around you. The families that we grew up, the family units, they're gone. I I don't know any family now that sits down at dinner and eats together. It's it's like they're almost like roommates. Well, like roommates, You know, in fact I know a lot of couples, I'm at seventy, I know a lot of couples that after about twenty years of marriage, they don't even sleep in the same room anymore. Wow. Well, and so people see this let me finish Frank Saving. And and people see this and it's like you know, you know I, I, I apologize, I didn't interrupt more than anybody else in the world.
2: I've noticed.
10: Um, <laughs> thank you, Frank. I could count on you all the time. Uh seriously, they see bad relationships, you know? I, I remember asking a, a young guy, like, well, what are you planning to get married? And he kind of, like, motioned over to his fans who were bickering. And it's like, well, why would I want that? You know? And it's like, they don't see the kind of family that we grew up in. And so it's like, why would I put myself financially and legally Entwined with someone who I probably won't be with in ten years. That's the. Well,
2: think. Rick, uh, thank you. I, I won't dispute that that's a factor, but um, I, I think there's more to it than that. I think it has more to do with the, with people not interacting with one another, and. Um, it, well, look, I've said a lot, so I'm going to let other people weigh in. I have a lot of things to say in response to what you just said. First of all, I know many couples that still sleep in the same bed. I know many families that still have dinner together every night. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. 848 Dave is in Dumont. Hello, Dave.
14: What's up, Frank? How's it going? This is my opinion on, and this is what is truth. 60 in the 60s. 70s and 80s, and maybe partially into the 90s. Sex was free and easy. You had the sexual revolution in 1967, the summer of love. You know, people were encouraged to have sex. You know, and things have changed. You've got people that uh, have you know, like you used to advertise, you know, like in the paper, you could run a personal ad, like back in the 80s, if you, and by the way, the New York area is one of the worst areas to try to meet somebody, mm-hmm. in my estimation, because I was out there, I experienced it, and I'm not a bad looking guy, or at least I wasn't a bad looking guy, I'm 64 years old now, but I looked good when I was in my 30s. Sure, so
2: tell me about this disparity, Dave. Why do you think there's so many more single men than women?
14: Because women are in control. Women uh, are not going to casually date like they used to because what they see on TV, what they hear in the news about this girl getting raped and this girl getting slashed and this person getting... uh, you know murdered or whatever and people see this stuff and it's planted all over the internet
2: so it's the, the it's the that's... media coverage and the it's women are the media
14: are... coverage exactly it's the media coverage that that uh, that makes this stuff more in the forefront of people's minds so you know like years ago when we would go out to clubs and um you know uh they'd say oh this place is a meat market you know, in other words, the girls were looking for a guy to go home with for the night.
2: This doesn't happen anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, what happened? Thank you, Dick. What happens now is people aren't even meeting in bars; they're they're just trying to hook up online. And uh, I think you're seeing the consequences of that. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. The one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Craig is in Westchester. Hello, Craig.
3: How you doing, sir? Um- Yeah, I mean, it was just a whole different world when I grew up. Drinking age was 18. Half the people in the bars were 16, 17. They borrowed their... Sisters and brothers' uh, IDs to walk into the bar. Nobody checked. You could drive from one place to another. There were very, very few police around to try to stop you, and every place was jammed. It was jammed till four o'clock in the morning, and then you went to the diners. You paired off and you went to the diner with somebody. You know, I mean, you just you just had a whole different way of meeting people. You had a whole different way of of of, of gathering friends. I mean, I, I have. I have friends now that I had when when you know well when I was 6 or 7 but I grew up in a small town and I mean it's just it's just amazing that uh, you know I mean this you went out you you could hook up with anybody you wanted to um there were a lot of things you you smoked a lot of pot you smoked a lot of you know um, there were other things that you partied with, and so what do we do was, about
2: it now, Craig? So we Should we, we just water. throw in the towel as a society?
3: Well, I mean, the whole world's different. People don't go out. People right. are afraid to go out. Right. Understanding, to go to,
2: understanding that. So, what what can we do to turn this around?
3: Well, you you got to make safer streets. You've got to make it safer to go out. You've got You got to make people feel more comfortable. I used to go down to the city every weekend. I would walk around. I'd, I'd walk around 42nd Street. I'd walk around, uh, you know, I'd, I'd walk around everywhere in the city. I'd go down to Bleecker Street. I'd hang out. I was never afraid to do that. Yeah. Now I think twice before I do anything. You know, I, I, mean,
2: I, I don't think that's the factor, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. In 1991, there were 2,500 murders a year in New York City. In 1990, there were 2,600 murders a year. This year, um, there are, I mean, who knows how many there'll be. There'll probably be uh, 450 murders this year, maybe 400. So crime is much lower than it was uh, 30 years ago, substantially lower in places like New York. So um, it, the don't give me that young people aren't, uh, especially young men, aren't going out or seeking to go out because they're afraid of getting, getting victimized in ter- by criminals. I don't buy that. I don't buy that for a second. Uh, I I think it comes down to the reliance on social media. And um you know, I saw that um TikTok is going to be banned by the uh, federal government on certain devices on uh, I think any any uh they're giving federal agencies 30 days to ban TikTok. I think that is a an important thing. Obviously, that's more about Chinese security and things of that nature. But, you know, I have to question the value of social media for a lot of young people or a lot of adults in general. Honestly, I don't think that I would be on social media but for the fact that being on the radio – Essentially, you have to be and it's it's almost like you're creating two separate shows. You're creating one show for the radio and then another show just for social media to keep getting more and more content so that you can maintain your viability on the radio because so much of what the people in radio look at is your social media following, your social media imprint. How many streams do you have? How many podcast listens do you have? And the more of a social media footprint you have, the uh the more streams that you get and the more podcast listens you get. So, it becomes this this uh this cycle where even even as adults there's so much pressure to Participate in social media and I, I question the value of that being the primary way that people meet. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We're gonna do uh the thousand dollar minute in just a second, but let me get a couple more calls in on this. Jose is on the L I E. Hello, Jose.
10: Hey, Jose. hey Frank, how you doing?
2: Great. Um there used to be a time of iron men and wooden ships. Now we have wooden men and iron ships. <laughs> That's that's that, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. You so know, what what's the solution?
10: So now well, we need to get out there and interact with people more often. We need to go out, you know, there used to be time when, you know, dads used to spend time with their children and, you know, teach them how to hunt, and how to fish and everything.
2: You know, now everything's all social media and everybody's stuck behind the screen. And so how as a society do we change that?
10: We need to interact more with one another and become a family. Instead of being on the phone, staring at your phone at dinner time, we need to stop putting these devices
2: down
11: and start talking with one another as a family.
2: All right, Jose, strikes me as a good start. Hey, I know Harvey in the Bronx has been holding a while. Let me say hello to Harvey. Hello. Oh,
5: fact,
16: hello? Mike? Yeah. Uh, Frank? Frank, yes. Frank? Frank.
2: Yeah, spring when last training time?
16: 1947 was the most important spring training. The Dodgers moved from Florida. Cuba and Panama to make sure that Jackie Robinson trained with the Montreal Royals and Branch Rickey then went, came, came to Panama and there was an insurrection by Dixie Walker to stop Robinson from playing and Leo DeRocha came up and said to the team, I don't care if he's black, white, or with stripes, he's playing. So that was the most important spring training in baseball because the Dodgers had a move from Florida, which was segregated play in in Cuba and Panama,
10: and for that reason, Jackie Robinson was able to enter baseball. You can read it in my book, Baseball Bastards, which which I mailed to you.
2: Oh, thank you. I will look forward to checking that out. I will uh, count you as as enthusiastically in favor of the new rules then. All right. Uh, Those of you that are holding, if you want to keep holding, you're welcome to. I'll try and get to you after the $1,000 minute. But uh, hopefully we'll do better today than we did yesterday in terms of the $1,000 minute. The fellow that called uh, did not even know what month it was. In fact, I got an SMS text message here from a a gentleman. I think it was a gentleman who writes the following. He wrote, um, just got done listening to last night's show. When I missed the question on the $1,000 Minute in September about what hurricane was hitting Florida, you berated me within an inch of my life, in front of Brian Kilmeade, no less. The gentleman from last night's contest didn't even know what month it was, and you didn't say boo. I would like an on-air apology. So I don't know this person's name. I asked him, what's your name? But that's that's fair. I apologize to this person. Uh, I am sorry. I didn't mean to insult you. Last night, was you just speechless? I was speechless. I mean, how— First of all, if we don't do better than last night, right, we're in real trouble. Yeah, we we ought to quit. If somebody today doesn't know what month it is, we should just we should hang it up. All right, if you want to be if you want to participate in the thousand dollar minute, be the seventh caller right now to eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. And if you're selected, you'll get sixty seconds to answer ten trivia questions. So go ahead and be the seventh caller right now at eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. We'll do the thousand dollar minute straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Frank, Marano. Frank Marano.
2: Singing, bringing Sexy Back. 800 848 I hope we're doing better than yesterday. And on this edition of...
1: The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank.
2: Thank you, Chris Libertini. Uh, let's meet today's contestant, Dave in Baltimore. Hello, Dave. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, Dave. Uh, thanks for listening uh, to us out there on WCBM. Yes, sir. Are you excited about the forthcoming criminal trial of Marilyn Mosby?
7: Well, if it's like regular of politics, it's one big emotional letdown.
2: <laughs> I get that. All right. Um, have you heard this contest before? I've
7: actually played it, and I appreciate the hat. That's my Sunday go to. Oh, great! Hat.
2: Oh, wonderful! You got to send us a picture of you in it.
7: Okay, I'll do my best.
2: All right, great. So, so you know the rules, right, Dave?
7: Yeah. Don't ask me any trick questions.
2: No, no, no trick questions. No, no trick questions at all. I listen.
7: Fine. I listen to you. I listen to you guys every day going to work, and you ask on Presidents' Day. You ask the guy what future president wrote the book something about the Lion King.
2: No, and no, no. Profiles in Courage was the book. Ah, oh, we lost Dave. Uh I like Dave. Dave, call back. I'll uh, I'll take a quick call and. Uh, And we'll give Dave a minute to call back. And if if we lose Dave, then we'll give somebody else an opportunity to play. So, um, Dave, call back. If you can hear me, call back. Uh, Meantime, Phil in New Jersey has a comment. Hello, Phil. Hiya. How you, Frank? How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. I'm great.
11: I'm glad. Uh, I I think it's clear that the problem is that men have been made to be toxic, like toxic masculinity. There's a lack of respect for men. And it's almost like we're, at best, second-grade women. You know, Phil, I,
5: I,
2: I agree with you. I agree with you completely. And, you know, if you look at how men are portrayed in, say, sitcoms, the dad is always this bungling idiot and his fundamental mm-hmm. contribution is to be sort of a lovable loaf. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if, if you were to portray women or or, or blacks or Jews or mm-hmm. Asians in the stereotypical manner that men are portrayed on network television, how long do you think that would last? And, and I'm not saying... Saying that we should have those stereotypes but I'm saying for some reason you're right Men have become the one group of people that you can perpetually pick on, and there's no consequences. Mm -hmm. There's no men's rights groups picketing people. There's no men's rights groups demanding uh, any sort of action. There's no boycotts, and I'm not saying there should be boycotts, but I'm saying for whatever reason, men is the one group of people that you could pick on, heterosexual men especially. Phil, thank you. All right, we got Dave back. Dave, what were you, cheating already? Yeah, what what's that? No, nothing, Dave. All right, Dave, you ready to go? We'll we'll get to you before we we lose you again, okay?
7: I am ready to go. All
2: right, let's get started. What month is it?
7: This is February.
2: What social media platform was created by Mark Zuckerberg? Oh
7: man, what is that?
2: Oh, it's got a it's got a like part it? of the body in the title.
7: Well, I got one in a row. Uh,
2: no, come on. Give it a guess. There's like I, three social media a- applications. Starts with F.
7: Starts with F? Yes. I don't use social media. Oh, no, it's not the damn bird. It's, uh... Um, That's <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I've got one in a row, Frank. Oh, ah, yeah, Dave,
2: Oh, Dave. All Dave. right, I hear you. Hey, look, I can't, I can't, you know, I'm blaming social media for all the world's problems, so I can't reproach you for not being on Facebook. It's Facebook.
7: Ah, uh, that's it, that's it. Oh, uh, one question, one uh, thing with what, your topic today. Yeah. I think your study's incomplete data because they really need to ask how many of those young men were put on Ritalin when they were either in their elementary, middle, or high school. Well, right. That could be it. That because could... it's a, psychotro- a psychotropic drug.
2: Right. Well, But you think that's affecting 60% of men in their 20s?
7: Well, if it's 60% of the kids that are given the drugs, I guess we know.
2: Well, all right. Well, you might be right, Dave. Thank you. But then again, you know, we don't have to worry about Dave uh, on social media, being a social media addict. You know, I think it's a fair question, honestly, because people know about Facebook, even if they're not on it. I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar company. It's a publicly traded company. They made a movie about it. Um, oh, we got to give Dave a magnet. Dave, call back, and we'll give you a magnet to go with your hat. I, I disconnected Dave prematurely. Dave, call back. 800 I got to get out of here. I got to get
11: out. Is there some place to go? Is there some place
2: I can get away from all of this? <laughs> and how, Bob? And how? All right, eight hundred eight 800-848-9222. Now, let me get control of myself here. Hey, I, speaking of uh, callers, I got an email here. Uh, I was going to save this for next week, but let let me let me address this. Um, I got an email here from who wrote this? Um, uh, all right. Well, I I I I don't I, I don't know the person the person the identity of, of the person that wrote this but um frank how do you stand the idiocy of some of the callers to your show you should be like alan combs he would tell the callers if they asked how he was he wouldn't talk to them why do they always ask how are you frank they don't stay on topic and some sound like they're half in the bag or they talk so slow i can't stand it oh and stop saying you're not a republican You're on a Republican talk station and voted twice for Trump. (laughs) Let me, uh, to this unnamed person that's uh, emailing me, let me say first, um, you know, sometimes I do say, you know, I used to when people say, how are you? I would say, as Larry Glick used to say on WBZ, hang on, let me check. But there's only so many times you could say that. a show; It becomes trite after a while. Second, it takes a half a second to just say, fine, how are you? People aren't genuinely asking the question, how are you? It's a pleasantry. It's basically an extension of hello. So I, I know Alan made that a big thing. Curtis has made that a big thing now. It's it's no big deal. It takes no effort on my part to say, I'm fine. How are you? Right. Um, I, I feel like you are expending more effort in – complaining about callers asking, how are you, than I am. People are just trying to be polite. Second, um, the uh, as far as callers who um, talk slowly or don't stay on topic, we're on in the middle of the night, right? So you got to figure callers are going to be sometimes half asleep, sometimes half drunk, sometimes coming home from a long night at work. Whatever the case may be, that is part of the charm of Overnight Radio. The the thing that I love about this show is that if you listen to it, it's very unique to Overnights. You wouldn't hear a show like this in any other day part. This is a show that's tailor-made to Overnights, and that's who's there Overnight. And Sometimes, if a caller is kind of lame, sometimes I'll talk to them because, in keeping with what we're talking about, I feel like they might be lonely. And I feel like they might want somebody to talk to, and if uh, if it keeps if it if a forty second conversation with me uh, keeps them from being down in the dumps, what's it to me? What's it to you? Right. Um, Lastly, when you say stop saying you're not a Republican, um, I'm not a Republican. Do you know how easy my life would be politically if I was a Republican? I live in a very Republican area. I could run for any office in my hometown and win as a Republican. But um, I'm not because, you know, that doesn't comport with my beliefs. And I did vote for Trump twice. Trump was the first Republican presidential candidate I ever voted for. And I didn't vote for him because he was a Republican. I voted for him because I agreed with him on a whole bunch of issues. I also voted for Ralph Nader at least twice. I voted for uh, Gary Johnson. Right. So I never voted for George Bush, never voted for Willard Mitt Romney. Uh, I didn't vote for John McCain in the general election. I, uh, I I have a long history of backing candidates across the political spectrum. Ask the listeners, the conservative listeners that listen every day who write in complaining about how liberal I am. Ask them if they think I'm a Republican. You know, you go down issue by issue. Aside from opposing political correctness, opposing things like terrorism and uh, wanting to, you know, I don't know, be tough on crime to some extent and uh, wanting to give parents more options in terms of where to send their school to to, um, their child to school. I would say on issue after issue, I'm pretty liberal. And uh, I think that uh, for you to kind of just throw that at me as an ad hominem attack. I think it says a lot about you. Now, I would love to hear your criticism of President Biden, for instance. President Biden was at a Black History Month event and uh, he made the following remarks. I
1: know real power when I see it. The Divine Nine. (laughs) To have presidents, all the presidents here tonight. I want to thank him. And by the way, you know, I'm not. I I, I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. (laughs) I know where the power is.
2: I, I don't care too much about what he said there because I don't live to be offended. But he tells a crowd at the White House, "I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid." Um, now. Could you say that about any other ethnic group? Why is that okay to say about white people? So I hope the same criticism that you're leveling at me for being a closet Republican, you'll take issue with Biden for. Again, it's a joke. I'm not taking it too seriously, but you'll take issue with Biden for slamming white people. You know, or is he saying all white people are stupid? I mean, come on. It's ridiculous. Uh, but it's a joke. Whatever. Uh, 800-848-9222. We're to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
2: This is The Other Side of Midnight, and this is the song The Other Side of Midnight by Stevie G and the Multi Verticals. Uh, in a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. 800 848 9222. That's 1 800 848 9222. Uh, without further ado, it is time for
1: The Other Side of Midnight? This is 15 Seconds of fame. Steve! Hey, Frank, a couple
12: hours ago, I woke up in a Soho doorway. The policeman knew my name. He said you could go sleep at home tonight if you could get up and walk away. I staggered back to the underground, and the breeze blew back my hair. I remember throwing punches around and preaching from my... E. Frank.
6: Yes, uh, Frank, do you know
10: if the Vatican of Pope Francis I has an excommunication process for insurrected uh, Catholics like Leonel Messi?
2: Roberts. Hi.
11: Hello? Hello. Leo. The answer for today's problem is in the in the, it's, it's in the communist books. In the communist countries, was kids growing faster and faster? More kids. I, I call you tomorrow.
2: Ow!
4: Mr. Morano, class act you got
12: there. Listen, can you give our WABC magnets that may have the calendar on? So if you do get one question, you'll know what month you're in.
2: Cheat. <laughs> <Jeez. laughs>
5: <laughs> Shout out to Fred from Yonkers. Hey, Fred. What was Abraham Lincoln's mother's name?
2: How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? Troy. Uh, excuse me. Eddie.
12: Learn from yesterday. Live for today. And hope for tomorrow.
14: Go, Brandon.
11: Troy.
8: The reason you're doing
11: anti-male hate literature is because you're an ugly little Jewish man, and that's usually who's doing that. The reason why there aren't couples as many as as, as, as many as before is because most American women are fat and ugly, and no man is interested in them.
2: Very nice, Troy. I'm not sure that would prove the statistics. It would seem like that would be the opposite. All right. Um, that slams the lid on things for today, probably for the best. Back tomorrow with Ralph Nader, Frank Moreno. Good day.